<laughs> so I wrote a book years ago called Unmaking a Murderer, The Framing of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. And I was really moved when I watched that show, particularly for Brendan, because there wasn't a shred of DNA evidence there or anything like that. And I've been in uh, contact with the family members, um, Avery and Dassey family members, including uh, Brendan's brother, Brad Dassey. So we could start out then with what you guys have been putting out about Stephen Avery. What's, what's, um, what's new there? But the, so I think I'll, the, I'll bottom, the, the bottom line yeah. we came up with was that he he was uh, a psychopath. That's the everything that uh, I saw all the hallmarks for where I'm sitting, and uh, I, I don't think there's any way around that. Greg, what were you going to say? I didn't mean to jump on you, man. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump on on the Dassey thing. For me, I would not have interrogated a minor with his intellectual capacity oh, yeah. without somebody in the room, parent, lawyer, somebody. And, you know, I always say, if I, you give me absolute control over anybody for three days, I can get a confession. If, if I'm unethical and don't care, I can get a confession on anything. It was clear to me when he was talking about the whole situation when he said, I'm too young to have children. That's, that's outside of even understanding what we're talking about. So it's, yeah, I mean, for me, it, I would have backed away from that interrogation and not had my hands on that one. So, yeah. Yeah, because I think it's been used, the Dassey interrogation has been used by law enforcement, some agencies that uh, train law enforcement in what not to do. Have you seen anything about that? Haven't, but there, there are signs when somebody is false confessing. I'm not even saying he's false confessing. What I'm saying is having the wrong, having somebody with that mental capacity in a room, I think the three of us who've interrogated for a living would all say, nope, not touching that one. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you've said about... Um, Stephen Avery having psychopathic traits then. And, you know, there was obviously the thing with the cat. A cat was killed when he was younger. So I concur with that. Now, does his psychopathic traits necessary, necessarily mean that he is guilty of this crime? Or do you think that there, that there is, um, that's still a mystery? Yeah, the but two no, things aren't, aren't necessarily linked by any stretch of the imagination, though they could be, they could be linked. You know, I think what we were seeing in some of the interviews that we were seeing is, is he had very good reason to be suspicious, anxious about the TV interviews that were going on around him. He'd already spent some time inside, you know, and, and would be uh, suspicious of uh, police investigations into him. So there's there's all kinds of good reasons for some of the behaviors that show up and at the same time, all kinds of good reasons for understanding that he may have some psychopathic traits, but are they linked to the specific murder of, of a particular person? We wouldn't, we wouldn't know that. The thing Chase is you gotta is keep really in mind good. is- Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, Chase is really good at saying we're not the forensics panel. We're looking at what we <clears> saw in the video in the interview. And we saw plenty of red flags to make us collectively dig in and go after him in places where there was deception and there was hedging and those kinds of things. Again, we, I, I often say, you know, we're not reading lumps on your head and saying this lump means that. If the lump changes, you need medical attention, it probably means something. But a lump doesn't mean anything. And body language alone doesn't mean anything. It tells us where to look and where to focus. And speaking of that, it's the history of... of where he came from or what he did his history of, of violence and he, he was he was robbing stores when he was young it's not just that he killed a cat it's the way he killed it he threw it in a, in a, in a barrel that was you know a, a, that was on fire so you, you take into consideration those types of things psychopaths also have contempt for animals and people who like little animals and have, have feelings for them because they don't understand that 
what those feelings are and they see it as a weakness. So it's not just not just a couple of things he did. It was how he did them and the history uh, he had with that. He got in trouble for drinking a lot when he was he was younger. As you come up through your life and you have all these things that that are are that are known as um, the indicators or the, um, the red flags of psychopathy. Sometimes you can't tell some. You can't talk to somebody for thirty minutes and go, "Oh, that guy's a psychopath." It's tough to watch a video and go, "Oh, he's a psychopath." But when you can find out the history of them and then watch them talking and, and watch them answer the questions they're asked and the way they answer them and the way they look, you can get a pretty good idea. But sometimes it takes up to a year to to diagnose someone as a, as a a real psychopath. You know, to, to being a true psychopath. What allowances do you make then for people with particularly low IQs? And in, in Brendan's case, the test that the law enforcement were using back then, I can't remember the, the exact name of it now. Uh, I did research it back then. Talked about certain body language traits that Brendan was exhibiting, which implied guilt. But for someone with a particularly low, low IQ and learning difficulties, the police hadn't made allowances for that. Well, you, you can talk to someone and most people are on the impression that if you're a criminal and you get away with a lot of stuff that you're really smart, a lot of times you're not really smart. And in this case, if he didn't seem very smart, but it wouldn't really have much to do with whether he's his body, he's using his body language to, to fool somebody or his body language, especially with someone who, who's of less intelligence. They're not, even, they're not focused on that at all, depending on what, what you're dealing, what personality type you're dealing with in the first place. But that, that wouldn't have a, a a whole lot to do with his defense of him saying i'm 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 okay but and i'm going to act okay because he may not know how to act okay but that kid's not a psychopath that's that's for sure yeah so there's there's kind of a hierarchy when it comes to false confessions so let's just go down the quick list here there's sleep deprivation is one of the most proven and documented this is research by yeah. offshe o-f-s-c-h-e was one of the primary and authority, authority uh, dichotomy, where there's a high authority and low authority in the same room, being the interrogator has high authority. Absolute conviction in the statements of the interrogator of the person's guilt. And then there's even, we get down into more factors. IQ does not always play a role. There's people with extremely high IQs yes. who, have, who have falsely confessed. And then we get into suggestibility. And suggestibility is modulated by things like uh, being glucose depleted. So glucose depletion, uh, sleep deprivation, someone having more uh, homovanillic acid in their cerebral spinal fluid. Uh, there's tons of uh, neuroscience that goes into this. So like if you want to lower someone's inhibition to confess to a crime, don't give them any sugar. So we want there's I mean, there's a whole st a series of things that need to line up. And sometimes there's a perfect storm there. And I think IQ played a role, but I think everything else, his IQ and his mental development created the authority dichotomy there in that situation. The read yeah, technique, my, my, that's what it's called, read technique. Well, my whole point was taught, my whole point was around eth whether it's ethical or not, not around whether it's false confession, because one of the things I'll tell you is I've, I've interrogated a lot of people under high duress and lots of very smart people and some pretty not smart people. What I found is their body language is their body language is unique to them. I mean, body language is not a fingerprint, but it's pretty damn close. Everybody develops their own body language through a generation of doing what they do. And as I said in one of our things yesterday, the organism does what makes the organism successful. So if he always does this, it means nothing. 
But when he always when he doesn't and you ask a question, he does this. Hmm, wonder why. And that is less dependent on intelligence than on what's been successful for them in the past. Yeah, and the read technique, since you brought that up, that's a great tool. But if a lot of times people will go, they'll go take, they'll do the read training and they'll do it once and it will have been 15 or 20 years ago and they're not doing it right. And that's what gives it a bad name because when you, the approaches they use, there, there are, there, sometimes you'll say some things and sometimes you won't. And some people who haven't studied it, which is what you really got to do. They'll just do the same thing every time and think it, it, every person goes right down that line, but that's not true. Um, it's, it's a great technique, but you have to, it's something you have to finesse as you go along. It's, you just can't go right down the, the, the steps and do it. You've got to, yeah. each step is different with each person in the approach. Yeah. And when you're trained in that, they show you how it works in this instance, assuming you'll take that and go, oh, okay, yeah, I need to finesse it for this person. They're this personality type or the situation is different. Chase, you'll have a lot to say about that too, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it would be like someone misusing CPR and breaking somebody's sternum in half and saying, oh, well, CPR caused that. No, nope. <laughs> person caused that. And when you go into an interrogation, you have a plan, but you have to shift constantly. It is, it is a dance. It's one of the most stressful things you'll ever do in your life because you're constantly looking at the person trying to figure out what's next. My students many years ago had a, had a motto, be rigidly flexible. It's the best way to look at it. Have a plan, go in and try. Yeah. So to speak, speak to that, you know, human communication is highly complex. And so when you look at any kind of what may look like an instruction manual, which to some people, the read technique could look like just an instruction manual. Okay, and so you start going through the instructions and you realize, well, it's not working or it's doing more harm than good. It's because you haven't pulled out the principles in there you're just reading instructions so whenever we come to human communication we're trying to look for really simple principles that give us an inroad into the massive complexity of dealing with multiple human beings and especially under stress and pressure anything could happen you know all kinds of stuff can go down yeah read technique uh, and peace model or any interrogation that you study is a it's a collection of best practices that sometimes works in some situations. And it's not like an aviation pre-flight checklist where we're just kind of like going down and getting things ready. And then, oh, I check off the last box. Oh, the confession comes out. So, I mean, it's, it's yep. extremely uh, variable. And as the interrogator is the guy that's a, or woman that's applying these things in situ and has to deal with all this uh, tons of stuff going on. So these are just a best practice model. So when they yeah. say that something causes a false confession, it's not the technique. It's it's 99% of the time it's the operator. I agree. And these, these, I just, I just have to have these sitting out because I was uh, running through them the other day. <laughs> these are the two manuals you use for that. They're not very thick. However, there are books this thick on the, on the read technique. And there's so much more you can get than, than, than just those. So there's a lot that comes with it. When we string together read, we string together sharp, we string together elicitation, we string together behavior and body language and motivation and human psyche. A good interrogator never stops learning. If you have an interrogator who, who calls himself a who calls himself a master, usually we think, hmm, hold on, how'd you get to be a master? Because it takes years to be functional, not to be a master, to be functional. And the longer you do it, and the more people you deal with in different walks of life, the better you're going to be.
Yeah. And you and, can and take you know, parts of that technique and use it for other ones. Like we, when we spoke with Jim Smith the other day, the guy that interrogated uh, Russell uh, Williams, the guy who was a, a colonel in the Canadian uh, Air Force, that guy, that's sure. the way you do it. You use parts of it when you need to. Yep. When you've got all the other techniques that you you come up with your personal one as you go along, because the re technique you can you can it's like play doh you can form it and shape it and, and Lego and you can make it do anything you want it to do for you, you know. I like to say it's like a muscle car you can put it whatever kind of wheels you want on it. You can paint stripes or flames on the side. You can make it whatever color you want, but you look at it like that, like like something you form for yourself. But Jim Smith has that whole thing figured out. You should talk to him. I'm only laughing because Scott's the least car guy in the whole group. <laughs> That's true. I have a traverse. Well, I appreciate your fascinating insight on that. And it's great to have such a diverse range of viewpoints on every subject. That's what we're trying to do on this channel. We're going to move on to the Royal family next because one of your most viral videos was the, the uh, you know, post Oprah interview. And now we've got, the uh, William and Kate have established their own YouTube channel. Have you had a chance to look at any of their stuff yet? No, I, we haven't looked at theirs yet. And we often get asked, hey, can you compare this person's body language to the other, Sean? And, and what we'll say is exactly what I said. If I look at your head, you've got lumps in certain places. I got lumps in certain places. And if I apply your lumps to my head, they don't make any sense, if that makes sense to you. Where yours are does not affect how my head looks. Now, if mine changes, that means something. I probably need to get attention. But if yours changes, you need the same thing. And so what we do is we look for normal for the person and deviation for the person. So when we compared Megan, we're comparing Megan to Megan, Harry to Harry. Brothers, you can get a little bit because there's commonality to body language and, and Mark points it out so eloquently about them copying Charles. That's a beautiful thing. But when you get separated and especially by culture and all that, it's huge. And I would say Mark, being the hybrid who is a Brit who lives in North America probably has more insight than we do to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just picking up there on, you will see both of the sons move their ring like this, just as their father did. did. Maybe as his, maybe not his father, but maybe Mountbatten did the same, I would imagine. So, you know, you get, you get this interesting kind of culture being passed down. But you know what the most interesting thing for me has been about the royal family uh, pieces that we've done. When we look at the piece that we did on Andrew and we look at, uh, let's call it the rating that we got in it in, in that how many viewers we got, huge peak. So the moment you've got a royal story, huge peak, massive peak. When it came to the Oprah interview, that peaked 10x what our Andrew interview did. So that tells me one thing, because now, you know, we guys, we've kind of got a media channel. That tells me one thing is that as the owner of that media channel, I'm kind of going, can I have another royal story? Will you give me another royal story? Because I can make money out of that. In fact, I want, I would like a couple a year, if you would. Couple you know, a week. <laughs> couple a week, if you oh, no, if, you, if you'll give me a couple a week, you know what? And if I can't get a couple a week, I might just invent some of them because I know you like them, I like them, we all like them. And that's what interests interests me. And and why does Meghan and Harry peak so much higher than Andrew? Well, the royal family are a representation of our own families. They're a they're a, a you know a symbol of our own families. Our scandals we sweep under the carpet in our own in our own families. Scandals are the worst thing. We sweep those under the carpet, especially sexual scandals. But arguments 
arguments between brothers and sisters and like we like to air those things like you know we're happy to have talk to each other about the arguments that we're having with our brothers and sisters and that's what these this part of the royal family are going to do for us they're going to allow us to see our own family arguments right in front of us and <laughs> enjoy and be entertained by that i think there's my takeaway from it so you're saying that resonates on some kind of universal level then absolutely who hasn't had some kind of argument with a brother or a sister you love them of course you love them of course you do but these arguments are are there and and the royal family is a way for us to live those out large on the canvas of our tv screens which is and and you know to, again to my first point people really want to see those aired and they will pay money for that and media make money out of that so let's have another so will, will, will you be looking at the channel then and doing something on it well look yeah for oh, yeah. sure um, weekly i go dig for new things and i start with daily mail oddly enough i walk through the daily mail site because there's so much out there and then we go from there so i'll go look at their site as well yeah, yeah. i had a quick i had a quick uh, look at it and the one thing that jumped out to me immediately is uh you know with 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 the people who are, you know, soonest in line to the throne, they're having a great time. Like, it's just a great fun channel. They're having a great time. And the, and the brother and sister-in-law on the other side, they're real victims at the moment. They're not having a great time. So it's really clear, one brother and sister are having a great time, and the other, we're not having a great time. It's, it's, it's beautifully stark. And again, you know, our, our, our reptilian brain, our primitive brain is out there looking for where is the stark contrast? Where is the stark story? And the royal family give us great access to those stark stories. We have so to we wonder have... if that was playing out in 1300 as well, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Next, <laughs> There's nothing new about it time. at all. <laughs> the War of the Roses. Yeah, but nothing. just without, without the pikes and, the, and so much blood. Nothing new under the sun. So we, we, we had a draw. Go I on, think sorry, a, a big part of the draw of that is the moment we see someone of high status go through uh, extreme turmoil, it reminds us very, very privately, and we don't talk about it, but it secretly reminds us that we're not as screwed up and our, our, our being screwed up is more common uh, than we might think. It makes us feel less uh, insecure, I think, seeing that stuff. No one is yeah, pretty much. People put a lot of pressure on themselves to be perfect. Yeah. When everybody has got the screwed upness to Indeed. some extent. Yes. All right. So talking about screwed upness, then I did an hour with Ed Opperman and we talked about Hunter Biden's laptop. And you guys have done something with Hunter about Hunter Biden what, recently. What, what, what laptop? <laughs> yeah, okay. Look, it could be a laptop. Maybe laptops don't exist. Like we just don't know. Uh, you know, if it's his laptop, somebody's laptop. Alleged so much, laptop. So much possibility with the, with the Look, laptop. A squirrel. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. He, so, he did a lot of what we call chaff and redirect around that. Anything he'll throw out as many words as he can. Hopefully, he'll link onto one of those instead of laptop, and then he'll change the subject. That's a pretty common technique for people who don't want to be scrutinized. And he did a whole lot of it in this interview. We had a great mm -hmm. time with that one. Mm -hmm. He's another. He's another really good gift for us. Bring more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think one of the things that we saw in him 
you know, was a, was a lot of when his his addict behavior, uh, you know, his his user behavior would would show up, and and the kind of storytelling that we imagine he would have told around trying to you know protect that he was using at the time he was using a lot of those uh, structures in this in the interview that we looked at. Um, so it's, it's tricky, you know, when you've got somebody who is, who is, you know, probably going through the, the steps of recovery, uh, but they still have some of those things, as, as Greg was saying, that worked for them as an addict, they've still got some of those structures and they're playing them out in the camera, you know, that, that whole idea of, you know, uh, you know, maybe the laptop exists, maybe it doesn't exist. You can see him using that that logic around maybe I went to get drugs, maybe I didn't go, go to get drugs. You know, what are drugs? Like define drugs. <laughs> All of that weird logic starts to come into play. Have you guys looked at um, his dad's body language then? Oh, yeah. yeah. We did him for the Tara Reid case. And of course, we've we've also looked at him during the whole election. You know, I we covered him on TV. So, yeah, we all of us have talked about him in different places. And how would you score him on authenticity? Well, he's a product. He's been in public eye for 100 years, 157 or something he calls out all the time. And he he certainly has, I always say he has two things. And then each of us have a, a, a summary of him I think would be good. I say there's two Joes. There's come on, man, where he's trying to persuade you to do something. And there's now look. And it depends on which version of him you're getting or which blend. He does the the televangelist and the holy warrior when he's telling you and when he's asking it's a different body language that's mine uh scott i see it as the old joe and the new joe because things have, have changed a little bit for him i think as we grow older things change and personality types change and i think that my comparison is always with the the old with the new that's where i i go first Mark, what do you got? Yeah, the one thing that sticks out with me when I think back to when we were looking at him during the elections is when he goes asymmetrical, he easily, which is, you know, one part of his body doing something very different from another. And when he's in that rhetorical situation, giving speeches or debates, the moment he goes asymmetrical, he easily goes off balance. He easily loses his words. He can end up in a bit of a word salad. But the moment, as Greg was saying, he can get into that televangelist state and that holy warrior state he's pretty formidable as uh, in his in his rhetoric and very very strong so it's about keeping him balanced what about you chase what are your thoughts I, I would rate him pretty low on credibility with the caveat that i don't rate hardly any politician very high in, in credibility <laughs> yeah. they're all full of you know what and i think uh, joe in particular struggles between looking like or wanting to look like a big time leader and wanting to to communicate that oh i'm just a normal guy you know if i don't put my mask on i'm going to get in trouble and so i think that he struggles between those two things and i think he's stuck in the middle to where there's uh there's some cognitive dissonance and i'll i'll just leave it at that so looking at the greatest uh what are recorded as the greatest speeches of all time then people like um jfk Martin Luther King, you see there's certain body language and communication traits. Now, with technology advancing so much, we've got this TikTok generation that just seem to be on a whole other wavelength. Then how, how does the old trait 
of the people giving the speeches, like Biden. Do you think that there's a, a gap, a kind of a distancing between the young people now because of technology? They just look at these people using these old traits and they don't relate to them whatsoever. Could I go on this one first, guys? Sure. Uh, yeah, man. If you look from 1962 uh, until today, the winner of every single election was the one who spoke with the lower grade level of vocabulary. Really? So it's a, this is documented. Wow. And so, uh, for instance, uh, Ted Cruz speaks, uh, his speeches are at an eighth grade level. Uh, Joe Biden was at a six. Donald Trump scores at a third in the speeches. And that's not the level of intelligence. That's their level of communication. Uh, so the number one thing back then is still the number one thing today, and that's focus. And I think focus is currency, uh, especially for a politician. So we don't have an in, uh, we don't have like an attention deficit. We say everybody's attention spans are going out of the window. That's I think that's BS because these people who are all over TikTok they're still binge watching Game of Thrones for like eleven hours. <laughs> so the, the attention span is there. It's an interest deficit. So their ability to do focus and interest is what really makes the difference from back then when there were less alternatives. Uh, Mark? Yeah, I would concur with that. What interests me, Sean, is that we've got this TikTok world, which is, you know, a few seconds potentially. And then we've got this long form world as well, which is a show like ours, a show like yours, you know, where people will stick with you for hours and hours and hours because they love it and it's relevant. And so that, that and both of those areas are growing growing exponentially you know what maybe isn't growing is that little bit in between which is hey here's 20 minutes here's 15 here's 10 minutes here's five here's it's it's the short form that can lead us into that long form and actually i think that probably bodes quite well in that you need to create a message which is relevant and catchy that will launch people into the long form which really helps people explore and enjoy and really work out where they uh, where they align on this greg, greg what are your thoughts yeah so if you you mentioned um jfk the jfk nixon debate was a crux too it was a crossroads it was going to tv from radio and everyone who listened to that debate thought that Nixon won. Everyone who watched it thought JFK won because Nixon was sweaty and all kinds of disheveled. Well, I think it's the same thing now. As people move to looking at snapshots and kids or younger people who are constantly aware of the camera, they look at things differently. And you need, to your point, Mark, you need to get your message out quickly or you don't hold them. And then it doesn't matter how brilliant you are afterward. And I think, Chase, it ties all that together, that ability to speak in very simple language so everyone's like, hold on, I get it, and then they bind on. I think the future is that. The future is people who can, who can do a really quick soundbite that gets your attention, and that was Trump with all his branding and all those pieces of reason he got so much attention. Uh, if, if you get that and you can get them in, then you can talk to them. Otherwise, you got a problem. Scott. Yeah, I, th I think we're looking at, obviously, it's the older and the younger, but, but to everyone's point, it's you get that little bit of that little bit of stuff to almost entertain you as you're going to sleep, as you're laying in bed watching your phone, or you're sitting in line somewhere, you're standing in line at the bank or whatever, and nobody goes to the bank anymore, whatever you're standing in line. So you can watch that really quickly. And the long form things are not, they don't necessarily watch this or watch these things. They listen to them as they do other things. So I think our attention spans have grown, have, have shrunk uh, in, incredibly small. 
So the, the feedback we get about our stuff is people don't sit there and they're watching it. They listen to it. And I'm sure a lot of people now are listening to this and not actually watching it. They're just, they're doing something else. They could be at work and they could have on headphones. They could be driving somewhere. They could be uh, cleaning something up, doing laundry, who knows? But that's, that's the two differences for me. One is entertainment and the other is, is long form entertainment. Two different things. One is all blast and you get all, Everything you get in the long version, you get in that one little minute. But it, but that's a differentiation between going back to the old and the new, is the the old, um, the and I think they see people like us as old people. You know, they see the president as old people. They don't even know who the who the vice president is. A lot of times when you talk to these people on the street, because they're so focused on on these little things and being famous in that world. So. That the big difference in the in the, in the new and the old. I think uh, when we get to politicians, they're doing they're doing more of the old style. But you have younger people coming in trying to squish that old style into the to the younger set by by the way they edit it and and having them say specific things and come up with these sound bites. I, I think the study is fascinating uh, of communication in in media the way that works. It's it's just sort of out of hand right now. I think it's sort of in some parts getting out of control because it's hard to control that. Well, great advice, fellas, for people in public speaking or studying communications. We have run out of time here. It's always a great pleasure. There's always so much to talk about. We could have kept going, um, but we've got to move on to Ryan Dawson right now. So I'm going to urge people to go down in the description box and go over to you guys' channel and um, stay on those videos. Don't just get in there and be of this soundbite generation check those videos out thoroughly please subscribe to these guys's channel they come on so generous with the time it's endlessly fascinating everybody in the live stream has just been raving about everything you've said this evening so really appreciate your time fellas thanks very much for coming on thanks for having us we'll see you. always great to see you all right thank you. cheers take care now. thank you, you later bye-bye all right so we're going to bring in ryan dawson next Hey, Ryan, how's it going, man? He's Sashi Booty. Long time no see. <laughs> Got Ryan's book right here. Oh, nice. Want, that one, yeah, wants, Separation of Business and State. If you want to support him, you can find that online, and you can also get the Epstein map. Yep. Got a, uh, got a couple other maps coming. We got the Biden Crime Syndicate map, and since it's the 20th <laughs> anniversary of September 11th, I'm building the 9-11 map, and it's a beast. It's like much larger than the Epstein map, actually. <laughs> I don't know why I decided to do it. I said I'd do it. Now I'm regretting it. <laughs> the, the Biden crime syndicate map. What, yeah, there's now, a lot of overlap between that one and Epstein, actually. I was thinking. Yeah. Andrew's on all the maps. <laughs> <laughs> Nygaard doesn't matter. It's just like... He's, he's going to be on my shelf by the end of the month. He is, uh, that was the best, like, unintentional comedy ever was that train wreck interview he did. And then the Eric Weinstein commentary on it. And I don't know if he is being facetious or not, but it's just, I was laughing my head off. <laughs> I have watched the Eric Weinstein commentary on it several times. And I've also watched your commentary on the commentary as well. That's, um, I don't know if people can still hey, access that. I but... answered all his questions. I said, I even said Maxwell's in the U.S. in the Northeast. I said her husband was. I answered everything. But they erased my YouTube. So now we yep, know why. So people can access <laughs> yeah. that now. We, we do have. I think we do have a bit of it on our channel still. Yeah, so, we, I did a show with you on it. Yeah, yep. we've got um, 
Maxwell trial date November 29 has just come in today. What's your thoughts on that then? Maybe, right? I mean, <laughs> that could get <laughs> it's um they say okay, it was supposed to be July 12th, and because there are more witnesses um and more charges actually that have been brought against her, they didn't have enough time to prepare, so they're gonna move it. And I actually kind of agree with that. It is sort of the 11th hour to be adding so many charges, and what do they have like 2.9? million pages of information against her so fine it gets bumped to november that might get bumped to january we'll see but um you know she's rotten in prison so i am not shedding any tears but i i was excited i was like this is gonna be a great summer but uh in the back of my head i thought nah they're not gonna do it in july but oh well. are you disappointed that no big names have been indicted with maxwell Jean-Luc Brunel's in prison, and that's pretty good. I mean, that's a mid-tier, at least. And um, other names, like Leon Black is resigning. Robert Kraft is crawling you know, down the ladder, trying to hide. Wexler's getting rid of assets. So although they're not in prison, the, the cockroaches are scurrying around, you know. Um, <laughs> Dershowitz is, putting, is trying to throw a uh, Bill Gates employee under the bus. Um, of course, he had his underwear on, so it's all good. Um, but yeah, I wish I wish we could get like a Clinton or something like that. We did have the new old photos from the uh, Epstein and Maxwell with Bill Clinton in the East Wing of the White House in 1993. And that's important because a lot of people I've been saying they blackmailed Clinton to get James Woolsey into the CIA because that's what Israel wanted. And they got it. It's the guy that lied about anthrax and da, 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 da. And they're like, no, he was in before they met Clinton because Clinton was, you know, on that trip to Africa after that. I said, trust me, the relationship is way earlier. Bam, pictures come out in 1993, minimal. And he had to know him before that. You don't just meet someone and go to the White House, right? So that came out. The Clintons, though, they always seem to, you know, they get away with murder, literally. <laughs> so they're just too well connected. But I'd love to get a big name like that. I want Dubin, Wexner, Black, and Gates to go to jail because that's the finances of the whole thing. Without them, it doesn't exist. All right. So you said Leon Black is, is uh, quitting his job. What's been announced there officially? Well, so from, I mean, it's that he's stepping down as chairman and he's stepping, down, but he's not really because. They did, uh, I think we covered this. Maybe I, I talk about Epstein to so many people now. I don't remember what I said where, but <laughs> he uh, first, he, he's pulled a Richard Pearl. Like, oh, I'm going to come down from this title, but he's still at the meetings and stuff. And it's illegal. So what they said is, because like, if you're not on the board and you're not a chairman, then you can't be at the board meeting. So they just changed the name of the and nature of the meeting, but it was definitely a board meeting. He was still there. But the fact that he's crawling away and there was an investigation to him that uncovered $158 million that he gave to Epstein. Uh, there's an additional $10 million, though, that he gave to Gratitude America through an LLC that I found a long time ago. So that's $168 million because that $10 million was not in the reports. So I'm like, how did you how did you miss this? I found this from my chair in Japan. Come on, guys. But whatever. Um, there's no reason to do that. And and if he's saying, oh, philanthropy or taxes or, or tax evasion or whatever, you're a billionaire. You have a list of professionals that that's all they do. And you're going to go to this weirdo. And what in the hell is worth $158, $168 million? Come on.
Exactly. No, it is preposterous, isn't it? And his employee, Robert Kraft, that owns an American football team, uh, was the one that got caught with the happy ending massages in Florida. And that's confusing to me, too. I'm like, how addicted to this are you? You're a billionaire. You could fly to Vegas and do that legally. Hell, you could fly to the Netherlands, wherever you want and do it. Legally. Like, you're in Florida and you just got to have it now, right? So he gets caught doing that. And the women are the ones that got in trouble because it is illegal. And uh, Kraft and some of his underlings that were doing this, they all weaseled their way out of it. Other than the bad publicity, nothing legally happened to them. Pretty hard in Florida uh, to prosecute these people, it seems like. They own the cops down there. So Liam Black gave almost 200 million then to Epstein. That we know of. I mean, that we know of. What... How does that work? I mean, what would that actually be for? What's your theory? Well, he doesn't give a good excuse, does he? I mean, if, we, if we, you we are, we know his excuse, but what do you actually think it was for? Well, he's blackmailed. I mean, it's well, it's for it's for the Israeli state. Um, these people. So what'll happen is, yeah, you pay off Epstein his pound of flesh, and he'll get a bunch of investors uh, into your projects, right? That's what he did for Dubin. Uh, that's what he he did for different universities. This he, universities, especially Ohio State, and you and I covered that one with the Schottenstein family and and all that mess with Abigail Wexner. Um, he was doing a similar thing in Harvard and MIT and stuff. They use these as money laundering operations, and so what they do is they just bounce money around in a triangle. It goes from a foundation, part of it goes to a university, and then it goes back to uh, an Epstein held subsidiary, and. The spread might be like, oh, he's going to donate 30000 He only gets 10000 back. And they go, where did the other $20 million go? Well, over on the different university, he's getting another ten and another ten somewhere else. And it, it all evens out and nobody pays taxes on anything. And it's not that unusual. But you still don't need Epstein to do that. Like there's – I'm fine with people not paying taxes. I hate – in America, our taxes go to blow up brown people. And, and we don't have any social programs or whatever. But – you know, they're, that's what they're doing is avoiding it, but they don't need his advice for that. But you'll pay the guy whatever he asks for if he's got you on tape doing the R word to little kids. And that seems to be what, you know, what? why is Bill Gates, $170 billion person doing, even noticing Epstein? He four doesn't years, need his advice. He after, definitely doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> four years after the conviction... Four years, four years after he knows better. His wife met him too, thought he was creepy as hell. And uh, I actually sent physical mail to their offices in Seattle and his wife. I don't know if they ever got it, whatever, but I gave him Epstein files. Um, but she, I think when the news came out in 2019, Bill had probably just lied to her. And then all the media was saying what a scumbag Epstein was and what he was doing. And she knows that he stayed late nights at the, the place in New York and you know he's flying around on Epstein planes he has his own planes plural and what what are you doing Mr. Gates uh for those who don't know that's the Microsoft guy the millennials might know Bill Gates is the man that pretends to be a doctor on TV uh, and also buys more farmland than Monsanto <laughs> he's I'm not going to get into the the thing that's going around in the world because this is YouTube, you know, the the thing that gets people sick. But we we can in the next uh, segment or whatever I get. Actually, I probably 
it's Patreon, my my avenue too for that. But um, Bill is very involved in that too, and that's something that if you want to know, maybe then come over to my uh, website and, and hear the rest of that story. But so they they use these universities though to launder money and universities like I don't know if you've ever heard of the microwire case. It was should have been a huge story. John Hanasio, these there was a microwire invention lets you track things from far distances, manipulate artillery midair. It's a dual use technology. And around 2015, it was stolen. The patents for it were, they basically just, the government came, got private industry, didn't give them the patents, stole the technology and sold the trade secrets to larger corporations as well as foreign entities. And that's something that went on a lot. And there's a, a man that works for Bill Gates named Nathan Mervold, who deeply in Epstein Poppick. That, that, that's who Alan Dershowitz said uh, Virginia actually had S-word with. He said, it wasn't me. It was this guy. You're mistaken. And Virginia's like, no, it was you. Uh, but that guy, um, Nathan, he's the chief of technology officer at Microsoft, or he was. But he also runs a company uh, for patents. And he... Is, has been involved in this, what they call this kind of patent mill, where they buy all these patents up and then force kind of strong arm corporations say, oh, you got to buy the rights from us or you can't use these things and all. And they squash smaller companies with this all the time. It's a, a huge problem. And I'm not against patents. I'm against patent abuse. And that's what this is. And he's a, a Gates employee, but he met Epstein in the 90s. We know that he flew on Lolita in 96 and 97. And he also, and then he didn't, just like Bill, I don't have any business relationships with this guy. That's not a good story. If you don't have any business relationships with him, then what are you doing? <laughs> You're just friends. You're just going to a pizza party like Andrew didn't do. Um, so he's like, I don't know the guy. And then he goes to Sarov, Russia and spends two days with him and a three week vacation. He definitely knew him. He, he borrowed his jet. So I guess they're just buddies that, you know, here, have an airplane. Uh, and he spent the night in New York and he spent the night in Florida. This is the head officer of the, the chief of technology at Microsoft. You may maybe heard of that company. <laughs> and he's spending the night with Epstein and going on vacation with him in Russia and borrowing his plane. So they're, they're like this, right? Um. There's also a story where Epstein brought some Russian models into intellectual ventures, which is uh, something that uh, Nathan Mervold owns. And he's just walking in there. Who does this, right? Well, let me bring some kids into this professional business, you know, this investment business, you know. Well, that's what he did. Um, that's just one of Bill Gates' employees. There's um, Boris Nikolic. I don't know if you talked about him and i saw you did a a video about bill gates i'm trying not to cover the same things but we'd have to talk about this guy anyway that he was introduced to epstein by uh melanie walker and she's known epstein since 1992 and that's an important date as well because people want to know how far back this goes you know does it go to the early 90s to the 80s was Ari bin Menashe telling the truth? Well, it seems like it does go further back than people were assuming. She became his science advisor. She's allegedly a neurosurgeon. Uh, she may have had a diploma mill, maybe not. 
Uh, and then she meets a guy that works for Bill Gates. She goes and works for this foundation in 2006 and introduced Nicolick to Epstein. And then these, these guys, you'll see them in pictures together. I think I sent you one with uh, Boris Nicolick and Bill Gates and Jess Staley and Larry Summers and Jeffrey Epstein all together. I mean, the amount of creep in that room at that time. <laughs> I'm surprised the camera didn't break, but they're there. Jess Staley, by the way, is the one from JP Morgan. Now he's at in Barclays in the UK, but he um, visited Epstein in jail about 70 times. Uh, he and Dubin did a business uh, venture together. Glenn Dubin, I'm talking about another billionaire, the who his wife was used to date Epstein and Epstein wanted to marry their daughter and, it's it's Biden-esque how degenerate these people are. Um, but Nikolic as was actually named as an executor for Epstein's will, should Darren Endike and co. not do it. That was the number three guy. And of course, he's like, what? Uh, I don't know the guy. I'm shocked. Why would he do this? For his 1953 trust, he wrote two days before he was murdered. Basically, as soon as they had his money, they're like, All right, we're done with you. You know, it wasn't actually two days. It was 36 hours because he was killed very early or hung himself, whatever, very early in the morning. And there was a, a leak by an EMT person 45 minutes before the news broke on the three letter networks. And he did it on 4chan, but saying Epstein's dead. They um, made damn sure he was not going to be resuscitated by just leaving him dead for about 40 minutes. So. I know there are people that think he's still alive and escaped to Israel, whatever, but it, come on. That, that's like the people that deny airplanes on 9-11. Like, there is a conspiracy here, but it ain't that crazy. <laughs> and on, on that note, we are at the hour, so we are actually going to continue this over on Patreon. If you're watching this on YouTube, we do have Ryan's links in the description box below the video. I'm going to tell you exactly what they are right now. We've got Ryan's Epstein map of which I have a copy and I would urge people to check that out. Ryan has previously said he doesn't want donations, but if you do buy a map that that would help him with his activism, he's got his bit shoot channel. He's got mm -hmm. his website, ANC report. There's a shop there at the ANC report. And there is a donation link as well at the ANC. You report. can get the uh, Glenn Maxwell's tears mug. <laughs> <laughs> you got a Glenn Maxwell black eye mug. No, but uh, <laughs> I made some interesting photos about that. <laughs> she she may have just been malnourished or whatever, but like everything this woman does is fake and a fraud, like the in and out pictures is stuff. So I did one. It had like the puppy dragon from Never Ending Story and a Tyrannosaurus Rex and an alien and her black <laughs> eye, whatever. So he is, <laughs> he is active on, Ryan is active on Twitter as ANC reports. And also yeah, I got that YouTube one back. That was banned for like a year and a half, and then they gave it back to me. My main Twitters are all still gone, but uh, yeah, I got one for and now. There's a backup Not YouTube channel. We've got the link for yeah. that down there as well. Raina Kawa, R-E-N-A-K-A-W-A. Raina, and Kawa means river in Japanese. Raina Rivers. Oh. Yep. Hey, here we go. We've got Ryan back. Yes, here we are. We left off talking about Bill Gates, Black, and I'd asked Ryan about if all this money came over that we obviously know, the 
reasons black and said it was given financial planning, whatever is absolute nonsense. What <laughs> that money before? And just to try and paraphrase Ryan, then Ryan said there's like a money go round whereby tax dodging is a component of this. If you give some of that money to a legitimate, I think the examples we were using were like universities, Mm -hmm. then you're able to not pay taxes or write the amount off your taxes. There's some some kind of tax avoidance strategy going on. But Ryan also said that an amount of money of that size is indicative that these big players had been honey trapped. Could could you expand on that a little bit then? Yeah, you got two two types. You have those who are ideologically in agreement with it, who are siphoning money off of everyone else to further the interests of a foreign state. And then you have others that are forced to do it or else. They, and uh, so that's just your classic honey trap. And Epstein is not alone there. there and there have been other rings, the DC Madame. Um, you'll see most of the people in government are compromised. Um, even some of the good guys, like when Scott Ritter, uh, the former chief weapons inspector, that said there aren't any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Well, he got hit with a honey trap online and, and his name was smeared and all. And if they don't have one, they'll just make it up. Uh, Vitter, Spitzer, turn, you know, Elliot Spitzer went against the um, the corporate bailouts. And then it came out that he had an 18-year-old mistress or whatever. So a lot of these people have no self-control. That's why they're in government. And they'll catch you. They'll film you. They'll compromise you. Three speakers of the House in a row were compromised sexually. Um, Dennis Hastert had been raping little boys at a wrestling school. And he's the most powerful person. He had Pelosi's position, right? Like this is three in a row. So you often see these compromised politicians judges and so on epstein was more so targeting the science and technology because that's what israel was hungry for they already have the congress right so he was aiming at uh at uh american tech and innovation and siphoning that off that was his thing and i mean who the hell has a black book that has with president of the united states a prime minister of the uk two prime ministers of israel royal families um, not just the, the British royal family uh, members either. I mean, Tony Blair's in there, Clinton's in there, Ahud Barat, Ahud Omar. What is going on, right? This is going all the way to the highest level. He didn't tinker around with millionaires. He went after billionaires and those with other kinds of power, like heads of state. So this was a deep, like Eric Weinstein said, we tripped over their little iceberg and it's way bigger than anybody realizes. This wasn't just uh, Wexter Dubin and, you know, Burnell Maxwell and Epstein and some sort of weird pervert ring. This was organized and supported by states. Wexter himself, the mega group, the Steinharts, uh, the Bronfman family, that is the second generation of Haganah, which are the terrorists that created the Israeli state in the first place. And that's who's organized this thing. As for the money triangle, here's an example, like the the, the Koch Foundation spelled C-O-U-Q. I don't know if that's Coke or whatever, but that Epstein owned that. He gave Ohio State, because Ohio's Wexner territory, right? Ohio State two and a half million dollars to build a, a football stadium or something, and it doesn't actually cost that. And then uh West Nexter's uh charitable fund 
Then Epstein's Koch Foundation and another thing he made called the Financial Trust Company gave $46.6 million to YLK Charitable Fund, which is run by Abigail Wexner. And then $33 million is transferred by the Wexner Charitable Fund back and $10 million given to Epstein's Koch. So it's just going, C-O-U-Q, by the way, it's just going in a circle, right? And that was one of the more simpler ones. Sometimes they'll bounce it around a couple more times. But the... The Clinton Foundation, the Gates Foundation, they do this all the time. Oh, we're philanthropic, but you're giving money to other rich people, insanely rich people saying, oh, I gave it to this charity who gave it to another charity. And it ends up back in your pocket and then it's not taxed. Uh, that's one reason. But a lot of it is that a lot of this money disappears as you shift things around so much. You say, where is this going? It's going to foreign states and operations like they have to pay for this. And they are using political blackmail for influence. So you look at this, you look at the, this flag behind me right now. I couldn't say it when you're on YouTube, but they're bombing the piss out of Gaza right now. After they blocked Palestinians from being able to, to celebrate Ramadan in their gathering spot, shot a 16-year-old in the back and pelvis, killed a 60-year-old woman, killed a one-year-old baby, um, put 83 people in the hospital. Then Hamas starts firing rockets. Of course, they start the story in the middle and act like they're reacting to it. This will not be on a single U.S. news network. Not a single one of these three-letter networks, the Times and Post, are going to report what Israel has been doing to Palestine or the fact that they've annexed territory and are abusing these people and building racial colonies. None of that's going to be in there. It's just going to be the narrative from the Israeli side. And that's what Epstein and these people do. This ties into a question you just received from Tim Wilson, which is a centrist group... Uh, Human Rights Watch, a centrist group, have released a 200-plus page report on Israel apartheid called A Threshold Crossed. Could you talk about this and current events in East Jerusalem and Gaza? Well, I haven't read that report yet, but I've, I've read other reports from Human Rights Watch and others. And, you know, there's only one side that fears the camera, and that's the Israelis. They have... An ongoing annexation, they build racial colonies. They call them settlements, but it's cities for Jews and only Jews. Like, imagine a white-only city, how racist that would be, and how it would be worldwide condemned. But they can go into Janine or Bethlehem or any when just take some bulldozers, knock down all the houses, build houses for their group of people exclusively, just burn down the farms. If anybody resists, they shoot them. They've just taken this land nazi style and you would think with the hyperactive anti-racism in the united states where everybody's running around trying to find a witch to burn you know talking about police defunding all this craziness and yet when there is actual blatant racism like that they don't care because when you resist that you get censored you get you get abused really i've been abused for sticking up for Voices, people, whether it's Yemen, Palestine, Libya, Ukraine, etc., you're not allowed to defend those people, or you know, you're an, you're evil. You didn't want to go to war in Iraq. You must love Saddam. It's that kind of light switch brain. It's, there's there's a lot of things in between. <laughs> a, just love Saddam or don't go to war. You know, but the, the Palestinians are occupied in Gaza. They they put them on a calorie count. Israel's bombed universities, agricultural centers. People died in their bedrooms. They put children in prison. Uh, they torture these people. And then in the West Bank, they're just destroying their houses. And also East Jerusalem, they're doing the same thing, bulldozing houses and building Jewish-only colonies, racial colonies. I mean, it's insane. 
And that's going to have a, a clapback of anti-Semitism. Of course, it's not the Jews doing this. It's the Israeli state doing this. But people often confuse a government with an ethnic group, which is preposterous, but that does happen. And uh, and it's not the Arabs doing having it done to them either. It's the Palestinians. Plenty of other Arab majority nations are just as bad, like Saudi Arabia partners up with Israel and Syria, aiding Al-Qaeda and slaughtering uh, Shiite groups over there. So it's not a it's not a Jew Arab thing or anything like that. It is government. And the Israeli state can get away with all the murder and mayhem that it does for this because it's allied with the United States. And the United States tortured people in Abu Ghraib, sodomized young boys, demasculating them, recorded it and played it for their mothers. Simon Hirsch put that at the in the new york times uh and then he had to write it i think it was a new yorker and some others picked it up they sodomized kids they tortured people they castrated people they they beat people naked uh and the iraqis all saw this and you wonder why so many people gravitate to the islamic militant groups and stuff it's like because you firebomb fallujah you starved half a million children to death between the two iraq wars that's what the clintons did and actually, it's more than that. The little, the famous clip, you know, of uh, we've heard five, Hillary Clinton's laughing about it and all. And uh, oh, 500,000 children have starved to death. <laughs> that was in 97. There were six more years of sanction after that. And each year it gets worse and worse. They blow up their water treatment facilities and they wrote papers about this. When I say they, I'm talking about Pearl Wolfowitz from the same people that are on the part of Robert Kagan, William Crystal's group on the Weekly Standard. They're saying, yeah, well, chlorine can be doubled as um, an agent in mustard gas, but really it, they won't be able to, to sanitize their water and they're starting to end up with things like typhus and stuff like that. And they, they didn't care. Like, yeah, blow it up. Oh, well, all these innocent will suffer and die, including especially the young and the elderly and the babies. Didn't matter. They're like, Saddam's a threat to Israel. We got to We got to destroy the whole nation. And those massive billions that to be made, trillions to be made from the contracts oh, yes. surrounding that. Halliburton, Kellogg, Brown and Root, Bechtel, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, which we call Lottagreed Martin. Uh, they made bank. And then you look at the people. It's Liz Cheney was a president of one of the divisions, Dick Cheney's wife, of Lockheed Martin. You look at the board of directors for these groups that are receiving government money. And then you look at the policymakers not in Congress, but in the Pentagon, a huge unelected branch of government. And it's just a big revolving door. They used to call it the Iron Triangle. And as a guy, Richard Cummings, that wrote a, a really scathing piece on Lockheed Martin, and nobody would publish it other than Penthouse Magazine, which is like a Playboy magazine. The same one that published the Unabomber. Like, yeah, we'll do it. You know, But it's it's got nothing to do with Penthouse normal articles i guess but it was called lock stock and two smoking barrels and went all over and lockheed martin is the one that financed the weekly standard so these guys that the the gary schmitz and fred barnes and uh william crystal robert kagan whose wife victoria newland is part of the coup in ukraine all these ugly nasty people that were writing lies about iraq that lied about anthrax in a meeting in prague which which it's attached to rock to 9 11 erroneously uh, they got money from Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin doesn't care where you go to war. Any war is good for them. They get to sell more planes. <laughs> yeah, I remember the the Saudi soldiers were smashing up, ripping babies out of incubators, 
and, the Iraqis, and smashing yeah. Iraqi soldiers were ripping babies out of incubators and smashing them on the floor. All completely made up, wasn't it, to justify war? Well, Naira, who gave that speech, was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador, and she was coached by Hill and Noten PR firm. The, you should have noticed right away, like, why is a 15-year-old with perfect English in a needle-natal and intensive care unit? She's like, they ripped them out of the incubators. They threw them on the cold floor. That never happened. And George Bush Sr. put that in his speeches and stuff, and Tom Lantos and all that. The, the, they're just, you know, this is another Holocaust. Saddam is another Hitler. That's just what they do, because that's just emotion. Stop thinking Holocaust. You know, that's you've seen the pictures. It was not a Holocaust. There was obviously there were no babies ripped out of ink. But why would Iraqi soldiers do that anyway? All oh, this baby. I mean, no one, no one would do that. Maybe Israelis. No one would do that. It never happened. Uh, there, Kuwait was angle drilling into Iraq. Saddam actually sought permission before he acted because he's a CIA asset in the beginning, anyway. Um, and the, the April Gallup and others have been all over this. Gareth Porter's done a lot of great work on it. Scott Horton's done great work on it. People at antiwar.com, Justin Romando is no longer with us, but he's done great work on it. They did not go into Iraq based on mistakes, it was intentional lies. And it wasn't for American interests, and it was not for oil. It was for Israel. America lost oil imports when they invaded Iraq. But Israel got 77% of all its oil imports from the Kurdish annex region in the northern part of Iraq. As in Forbes, you can look that up. 77% of Iraqi oil, of, of all of Israel's oil, came from Iraq after America went in and died and smashed it up to bits. And then the rest went to China. China had no oil from Iraq. Now that's their biggest importer. So America went against its own interests to help the Israelis. They did that again in Libya. The French and all these Europeans are dealing with the migrant crisis weapon because they all got unleashed from Northern Africa when they killed Gaddafi. But they had to because Egypt had just had a, a coup. Mubarak was out. They reopened the Suez Canal so Libya could trade oil with the Chinese. And they also were opening the border with Gaza. So the Gazans were going to get aid from the Libyans. So Israel said, nah, sent the Europeans in there. America led from behind. France goes, bombs the hell out of Libya. Al-Qaeda acted as the ground forces. That country's been turned upside down. And then there's a refugee crisis flooding Europe. France went against its own interests to kowtow to Israel. This is how deep the tentacles go. Nobody in the press will talk, tell you the truth about the Iraq war or Libya or any other of these you know, military escapades. And when they do, it's this gatekeeping nonsense of oil or this or that. It just isn't. Go look up the import exports of oil of Iraq before and after the war. It, it, it doesn't pan out. Like it's a cool story. And a lot of liberals just blame everything on big corporations, man. But if you look at the specifics, that just isn't the case. Sometimes that's the case. I mean, obviously corporate interests are a huge influence, but it doesn't this real politic idea that a nation does stuff to further the interests of its own corporations it's 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 gone because the biggest corporations are multinational nowadays anyway and you can profiteer just by you know insider trading in stocks and things like that by the way i had a question for you Go for it. is a 12 to 1 uh put the call ratio pretty extreme or is that within a normal range 12 to 1 what's the situation for airliners, because uh, right before 9-11, there, there was a 12 to 1 call ratio on that. People put put opt-ins only on the airlines involved in the attack and not on other airlines. 
Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. It wasn't just the put-to-call ratio, though. It was the average daily trading volume. So if you look at the average daily trading volume day per day leading up to 9-11, the anomaly is so outstanding it made headline news. But then, of course, it disappeared because, I mean, the headline news story was basically this has to be insider terrorist trading. We will trace these trades. We will get these bastards. Then it's bam, gone. And yeah. then, it, then it was traced to, I can't remember the exact name of the bank. You, you probably got that one. Uh, but Buzzy Cronkite. Buzz, I mean, Buzzy, I've got the individuals. XCIA, Buzzy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so not only did they know it was coming, they positioned themselves to profit from it. And that was my wake-up call because I was an options trader. You know, I, I understood that. And um, anybody who had anything to do with any of those trades was deputized. So the feds came and said, if you speak to anybody about this, you're going to prison. <laughs> See, and that is, I, I run, I used to run a group called nine 11 truth for grownups on Facebook. I've been banned on Facebook because that, that whole investigation kind of got hijacked by crazies uh, who, you know, deny airplanes or, or halfway deny it. Like think, I just want to take like one minute to show people something. This is the hole in the Pentagon. It's look at the, all that black. There's a giant hole where an airplane did go into the Pentagon. Uh, but what what sites show you is only this hole on the top here, and act like it's a little 16 foot mm-hmm. hole. It's a big. This I know. <laughs> some people are just rolling their eyes, like of course, because <laughs> the debris from the plane was still there. So was all the passengers. And I also want to show this because I know Richard Gage was on, and he said there's no way a plane could smash through six walls and stuff. This is the shape of the Pentagon. The bottom floors don't have walls. The top is where the rings are. These are the two basement levels. And these two floors where the plane went in, it just hit that wall and went out that wall. That's it. Two walls. And they were not reinforced steel concrete and all that. Here's another photo. I I hate doing this, but like that is, you can see the rings on the top and the contiguous bottom two floors. There are no rings for it to smash through. And I just find it embarrassing for architects and engineers to not even know the architecture of the building they're going to be making claims about. And, of course, that's not what happened. They just ran around saying, do you do you support an independent investigation in 9-11? And anybody that said yes, they counted them as a name and said, oh, we've got X number of thousand engineers and stuff to agree with this. No, they didn't. The charlatans took over that. And if you want to know about 9-11, you don't sit there and nitpick about the physics and stuff like that, or like running around looking for nanothermite or mini nukes and nonsense like that. They just use shape charges, nothing fancy. We had an intelligence agency caught with explosives, filming the first plane hitting, celebrating the attack. We had men arrested who did illegal work on the fire prevention systems. They sat in jail for 10 years. Khalido Dallas, Akira Hamad, Abdullah Sin, Mahid Hamad, uh, Muhammad Ali Fares. Mosaf Saeed Amun Sahid. And then you had the Israelis, Yarin Schmel, Sivan Kersberg, Paul Kersberg, Oded Elner, and then their boss, Dominic Suter, and his wife, Ornette Livingston Suter at Urban Moving Systems, illegal front company, filming the first plane hitting. All of them had different stories. They all lied. We have the real information about this event, but it has just been flatlined by the Alex Joneses and stuff of the world that are just obsessed with building seven and just peddling nonsense. And it triggers me to no end because I've spent 20 years of research on this, the grown up version of it. Al Qaeda was not a separate entity. They are real. And Al Qaeda did do nine 11. 
kind of like the Contras did do Iran Contra. I mean, they're the ones around shooting Santanises and stuff, but where'd they get their guns? Where'd they get their money? They got it from the CIA. Iran Contra is a perfect example of anybody's like conspiracy say, uh, they got convicted for conspiracy and that involved all the way up to at least to the vice president's office, probably Reagan too, but at least to George Bush senior, who was a former director of the CIA, they were arming the Contras the entire time and publicly denouncing it. And they're doing the same thing in Syria. They arm Al Qaeda in Syria and they act like, Oh wow. How'd they get those? I guess they're paying for it with the narcotics trade or something, (laughs) you know, and purple shovel was busted and it's, we still have a relationship with al-Qaeda. We created them in Afghanistan in the first place, used them on 9-11, or using them in Syria now. And people that are in just denial, like, oh, either think there weren't any hijackers or are still alive, which is like the people who say Epstein is still alive. Like, you are totally barking up the wrong tree. I'm glad you don't trust the television or whatever, but now you're on some other charlatan, you know, and you're still just like a dog chasing his tail. You don't know this information and you don't even know that you don't know, but it's out there. I mean, I made a five-hour movie about it. <laughs> you see, why is it five hours? I'm like, because it's complicated stuff. <laughs> I like to make an Epstein movie, but um, I think uh, with all the books out there, I don't need to do it. Like Epstein has not been kookified the way 9/11 has. They tried and they failed. There are a lot of serious people d- digging into Epstein, as well as the. Uh, the thing that's going around, I, I know I'm not going to risk your Patreon to talk about that, but um, because they will delete you for that. That that if you saw Tucker Carlson and you saw Rand Paul with uh, we'll call him Doctor Slouchy, uh, they are really hammering them in the gonads right now. Like the whole narrative of the the coof that that Mexican beer thing is falling apart, and uh. I, I have some videos about it if anybody wants to watch it. We put them on PeerTube because I'm not allowed on YouTube or Patreon or Vimeo anymore. But wow. um, that's what happens when you tell the truth, truth about 9-11. There, if you want to say some nonsense like a missile hit the Pentagon or just whatever, you can put that on YouTube and get millions of views. They will push the disinformation. But when you say what really went down and you go like beyond Wexner, like how that whole thing got set up with the Sunborn Institute and all that. That's when you get censored. And I I don't even talk about that stuff on your show because I don't want to get you censored. We go right up to the line and <laughs> kind of hint and stop. But isn't that ridiculous? Like, we cannot even talk about this stuff <laughs> on social media. Let's, that's let's, let's go over to the next question then. Kelly has asked, Hillary was instrumental in weapons running to ISIS through Libya. Mm-hmm. Do you think truth will come out about Benghazi attack? I mean, it kind of has from as far like if you look at the gray zone with Max Blumenthal or, um, you know, writers for Consortium News or the sort of grown up alternative media. It's not going to it's never going to be on CNN or anything like that. If that's what you, you're like, will they ever do that? Republicans and Democrats, it's kind of a false paradigm. Like, what? Because if the Republicans tell on them for Benghazi, then they'll tell on them for this and that. So, I don't think so. But you're absolutely right that they were running guns uh, from Benghazi. The our ambassador that got killed had two prior attempts on his life before that that they always omit from the story. Hillary's the kind of gal that blamed the attack on a internet video making fun of Muhammad or something. 
of course they went straight to identity politics. It's like, I don't think they're mad about the YouTube video. I think they're mad about invading their country and turning it upside down and giving it to Al Qaeda. And they were taking, there was this huge surplus of weapons when Gaddafi was outed from the Libyan military that went on the black market. And the, the CIA intermediaries like Purple Shovel and others were taking these caches of weapons and sending them to Al Qaeda fighters in Syria. Uh, but of course, they need plausible deniability, like Ali North says. So the, the CIA cannot just take weapons and sell it to Al Qaeda directly. That would be dumb, even for government. And so uh, they use these intermediaries. And there was a ship busted in Lebanon in route with all the. I mean, I don't know how they could get caught more than what they did. It just doesn't seem to matter. I mean, Hillary Clinton could eat a baby on a stage and they would blame the baby. Like these people have so much power, <laughs> right? They'd be like human shield, something that yeah. was going to grow up to be Adolf, you know, whatever. I mean, the, the Clintons, the, the stuff they did in Haiti, oh, and that that's human trafficking, bestiality, rape of every kind. They don't care. They murder people. Uh, and they did a lot of the same things like with Frank Gooster washing Saudi money in Canada for the Clinton Foundation. And guess who helped set them up? With a global initiative, all that Jeffrey Epstein again. Um, because the Israelis know how to do this, that's how they created their whole state was gun running and human trafficking. And uh, because it took it was all the worst characters from all these different countries in Europe that helped form that state. And and coming out of World War II, where I think everybody needed therapy after World War II. I mean, it was the cities destroyed, and the worst things that ever happened to people. And yeah, I mean, the Clintons, man. That's uh, Sean's got some great books on them. So does uh, Peter Dale Scott. He's got some stuff on them. Um, it's 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 so people are like, what about the Clinton? I don't even know what to say. It's so overwhelming. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> you can write a John series Kerry of was pretty bad too. I mean, he was he was Secretary of State after Hillary, and he's with the Biden crimes and to get worked with the uh, Boston Mafia boss and um, the the old whitey and and had uh ties you know again to china like biden does with Devin archer and chris hines his stepson and of course hunter biden the crack addict and all that it's disgusting they're all degenerate and they and hunter biden was incensed because one of his pimps wasn't uh getting his escorts to his hotel on time and stuff these are the kind of emails we have can you imagine if one of donald trump's children had emails like that uh, no way you know <laughs> the bidens can get away with it because Jeff Zucker and all these people, you, the media is really top down. You're talking about like half a dozen people decide what does and doesn't go on the air. Right. And they're all in the same little network. They're all in the little cabal, you could say. And they don't care about human trafficking. My God, we just had a pedophile ring busted in Germany with 400,000 members uh, buying smut online on the dark web of kids being abused and raped in pornography films little kids like six years old and stuff too four hundred thousand people <sighs> i didn't know I, in my growing up i thought pedophilia was a weird rare thing like cannibalism like oh who would do that it's much more pervasive than i guess us normal people realize <laughs> it's a lot of people are in, into messing with kids and uh Child abuse begets child abuse. It's kind of the, the the problem. Like most of the abusers were abused and so on. And when you look at the Dubins, right? When Bill Gates is saying, remember what Bill Gates said? 
there was a very attractive Swedish woman and her daughter, so I ended up staying rather late. You're married, man. What has that got to do with you staying late with Epstein? You don't have any business deals. You're hanging out at his house and what he brings his friends over. And Epstein knew good and well what would happen if she brought Eva Dubin over. Because the, like Kirby Summers is saying, they were the test case, right? The Dubins was sort of, I guess the girl was good at it and willing or whatever. She would have been 16, Selena, at the time when Gates was there. Um, Because they tested Virginia too. Like it was the Dubin, it was both of them. One got... A, Ava was pregnant, so isn't that sick? That was in a belly, but uh, uh, she got a massage, and then Dubin did it in the living room on like a bearskin rug or whatever. And you know, she did all the things Maxwell taught her how to do and pretend and stuff. And that they're coaching these people. It was it's so sick. They're doing this to little kids and passing them around, uh, and they they just train them. They got like little finger in Game of Thrones. Like, nah, you got to fake it like this and do this and tell them that and. You know, be be a good piece of meat for the uh, the billionaires we're going to pass you around to. It's like the only thing they can't buy because it's illegal, so they got to have it or something. I don't know. Like I don't, I can't even fathom a billion. Yeah, how much more that is than a million? Like people don't realize what another order of magnitude a billion dollars. Bill Gates just lost more money than me, Sean, and everyone watching has ever had. He just lost seventy three billion dollars. <laughs> That's that's the one white pill. Like his divorce, him losing seventy three billion dollars. That's a that's a win, you know. That's, <laughs> I take that as a win. <laughs> so you got loads of questions coming, Ryan. And I All think right, I'll answer them faster. If I we're going to start. Um, this lightning round. It inviting users onto the screen to ask questions as well. It's about time we started doing that. We haven't done it yet so far on the Outward Unleashed series. So my question to the users is, is any of you users who's got questions, are you set up with a camera whereby you could come on the screen? If you can come on the screen, please put in the chat now and we will pull your question up and invite you on the screen. You've got to ask us a question because then it comes up as a question and then i got you that button then invite user onto the screen you don't have to wear a mask don't have to wear a mask we're sa even. safe yeah we're safe tim tim wilson <laughs> tim wilson i'll read you his question while i try to invite him on the screen um israel is loved by fascists because they do not represent the jewish stereotype the weak intellectual woody allen type so the israeli state is looked up to as a perfect fascist state while being loved by anti-semites What's your thoughts on that? I mean, I wouldn't want to be the Woody Allen type either. I mean, like, <laughs> if somebody could outdo Israel in its misery, Woody Allen is adopting his own rape victims. Like, I don't know if that is a Jewish stereotype or not, but there are people that they felt, I think they felt psychologically like they needed to bully somebody because of World War II. They were so humiliated, you know, naked and starving to death in camps and stuff. So they, they needed a quick win. So let's go pick on the Palestinians or something. But this current conflict is because Netanyahu needs to retain power or he's going to jail. So first he bombed Latakia in Syria, and then he started uh, messing with Gaza. He agitated them, provoked a reaction because he has to stay in power. And uh, Gantz, you know, Israel is a fascist state. It's a kind of religious fascist state. But the religion isn't Judaism. It's 
Zionism. It's a, a sort of mixture of religion and politics. It's this weird uh, combination of the two. And it doesn't represent, it's, it's nothing to do with Jews. That, that's like blaming North Korea on its Koreanness. Like it's communist. That's the problem. And the problem with Israel is it's Zionist. It doesn't matter what the people are. But that is conflated. And you could, I guess you could make an argument that that's in the psychology for an identity basis or whatever. But the, the problem with Israel is it's enabled by the United States. Like any, otherwise, it would have consequences for all these actions. But because it's got big bully America behind it, you know, it can always run behind our legs and, you know, hey, what are you going to do? If you, if you hit us back, America will carpet bomb you. So you got to blame the United States ultimately. And we have a responsibility in it. All right. So I'm going to go down these questions. And I'm giving each person who's asked the question the option to come on the screen. No pressure at all. Uh, I imagine that many of you have not got a camera set up anyway. So don't don't feel um, like you've got to come on the screen. We are enjoying your questions. But I will give you the option to come on the screen. So the next one is from Cynthia. Has Ryan linked the finders cults to this general topic? Or does he have any insight on the CIA links? Definer's cult's a little bit different than these pedophile rings. They were working on uh, the third version of MK Ultra, and they decided the blank slate way of smashing up people's minds was to do it to kids. Because we had Project Naomi and Project MK, and it's so ridiculous because the ultimate result of all this experiments with LSD and brainwashing kids and abusing was, guess what? If you want a Manchurian candidate, it's a lot easier just pay someone money to kill someone than it is to try and brainwash them and hypnotize them or any of that nonsense. Well, they wasted a bunch of money on it anyway. And they were sending kids down to Mexico. They told them it was a school. Well, it was a school kind of clockwork orange style, but um, that was right. All in uh, Nova, Northern Virginia, people in Virginia don't consider Northern Virginia, Virginia. It really, it's DC now. Like it's, it's so different from the rest of Virginia. And I get that. I used to live in, uh, Three different cities in Virginia, so I can say that they um they it, it's a sick kind of separate thing. I mean, the FBI was in that, the CIA was involved in that. Uh, the Epstein ring is more of foreign entities. This is the Israelis and their and their uh, cohorts. Finders cult was the CIA, uh, and the CIA the CIA is still number one or two in human trafficking still, and definitely number one in running uh arms uh and probably drugs so <laughs> I, I would like when they say you know narcotics is funding terrorism not really i mean governments are funding terrorism but narcotics are the explanation for how they have money to get all these toys right but really you know they they can't even escobar was burying cash in holes he didn't know how to move his cash around they didn't even have things to spend it on it's it's not that it's the CIA. I mean, they've been caught moving heroin. They've been caught running guns, and I I'm hoping Doug Valentine will come on Sean's show if we can arrange that because he's got the best uh, books on that, in my opinion. All right. So next question is from Griff: Is Gates' divorce a tax dodge or a way of cashing in loads of stock before a crash? Uh, no, this is Melinda's idea. Like she basically when their last child graduated, they're like, we have no reason to be together. That's all it is. And uh, he's going to lose way more from the divorce than he could possibly gain in taxes. 
All right, let me delete that one then. So Anita wants to know, is the Andrenochrome story the truth? Nope. That's, that's not it. That's so far out there. I don't want to make fun of people for it, but come on, that's nonsense. It, you could get adrenaline from, I'm not going to get in it. No, it's not true. <laughs> um, okay, so next one then is from Conal, and he wants to know, do you think they are prepping us for a false flag alien attack? They seem to have market tested two new terms. UAP and OWV.UAP seems to have tested better. Possible that lockdown was to keep people inside while they field test fake spaceships. All of this declassification of UFO-related material definitely has a purpose, maybe just as a distraction, but I think they only get people united under one flag if we're all under threat. Well, when you hear UFO... You shouldn't jump to alien. It just means unidentified flying object, which is still terrestrial. It means from another country. So like there used to, there were a lot of UFOs in the eighties because they were the Soviet union and the United States testing stealth bombers and things like that to use on each other, but they're all made by people. Um, but they did use the alien story as a sort of cover where if anybody started looking into like the stealth bomber, for example, the triangle lights in Mexico and all that, it was used and it was very secret, but one way of covering up a covert, but legal and totally uh, terrestrial program was to put out a bunch of stories about space aliens and stuff. Cause then when someone else was trying to talk about, it, I'm not talking about aliens. I'm talking about, look at all the money they're spending. You think you're spending $800 on a hammer. Come on. They're laundering money. They're having, they're siphoning that off or something else. And they were, turns out. But that person would be like, oh, so lizard people or whatever. And, you know, you're uh, it's guilt by association. And so they would use the alien story to discredit people who are not talking about aliens, but were talking about the very man-made secret programs and aircraft and whatnot. Um, as far as the false flag goes, I just don't, that would be a, a bad choice because most people don't believe in that kind of stuff. I think, uh, I think also 9-11 kind of killed major false flags in the United States because no matter what they do, most people are going to go, uh-uh, you know, <laughs> they, they messed that up. Uh, more or less, um, we're, they're going to continue the coup in Ukraine. Uh, it, it seems like the next spot for violence is, is going to be trying to add Ukraine to NATO, which will flare up things with Russia. It's going to be nuts. As far as the lockdowns go, it squashed small businesses, consolidated wealth on the top so they could buy people out for pennies on the dollar. Yeah, and I, I can't talk, I, we can't talk about that thing because it'll get us in trouble. That's yeah, how you know it's the main thing. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And there's still loads more questions coming in for you. Uh, my question, though, for the people watching has anyone got a camera set up so you can yes. actually join us on the screen? And you will be the first ever person to join us on the screen and that would unleash the series so is someone going to step up while i continue, somebody pop the cherry while i continue to ask the questions all right so we've got from deleted user pedos are they mentally sick or is it just a preference in the same way that some people have a sexual preference for example so if that's their preference and obviously they must be stopped but how jail won't stop them as it's ingrained into them Thank you for your good work. We say that it's not the petrodollar, it's the pedo dollar, right? <laughs> um, the world runs on blackmail. 
Uh, I have heard psychologists and stuff try and claim that, oh, it's just just like, you know, a normal sexual fetish or something. I don't know what, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I, I it tends to be people who are severely abused and it's not a normal thing at all. And I don't care if it is because there's another component to it. If you are attracted to children, don't act on it because the child doesn't want to be part of it. You know, I mean, if you're attracted to dogs, you can't rape a dog. Like you just, I don't, it doesn't matter what the reason is. You can't do that to another person. So, you know, it, people like all manner of stuff. And when it's two consenting adults, I don't care if you want to finger each other's butts or whatever. It doesn't matter. No, it's if you're both into that. A little weird. So what? But you can't do things to children. They don't have agency. You can't you can't do that. In my opinion, I don't think it's uh, just a sexual fetish like, you know, liking long hair or something or pantyhose or something. Like that. I think it is a degenerate perversion. If there's something... It's, I don't even know if it's all sexual. It's about control, about trying to ruin and wreck somebody. They, they get off on that. Same reason, same kind of person that would beat a child, right? Why would you hit a child, right? Because they, they enjoy it. Like they, like they love the, the power and the control over the person. It's, there's no, like, it's not a good fight or anything, obviously. They just smash the hell out of a kid. Like, who abuses children? You got something messed up. And if you're like, well, I just enjoy hitting kids, well, fuck you anyway like you can't do that you can't harm children we gotta protect our babies and to add on to that then i've got a true crime podcast called inside the minds of pedophiles with dr sarah goody and i actually felt sick after speaking to her but if you want to understand all of the various types and proclivities and her theories revolving around you know that stuff then go on the true crime um, podcast playlist or just go on youtube and put in inside the minds of pedophiles dr sarah good and that one should come up for you so we've got um conal has said that um he's willing to come on but um i've pressed the thing oh, here we go everything here we go oh. hey now first How one are you doing? all right Thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. My first time on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and and do you have do you have any further questions for Ryan, please? Um, not really. But in terms of false flags, I suppose there was a lot of school shootings there, questionable, like uh, where people were saying they saw you know people in uh, cops like SWAT gear and they were doing the killings and stuff like that. So I know, like, I think false, flag, false flags, although, yeah, 9-11 would have met people, like, you know, pretty kind of uh, untrusting about a lot of stuff to go for. And we have an awful lot of stuff. Like, and the bigger the lie, the easier it is to believe in a lot of cases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what, what are your thoughts on agent provocateurs, Ryan? Yeah, it happens sometimes, but you got to look at these things case by case. What often happens is... It's, it's almost a cult-like mentality. Like, they, let's say there's a school shooting or whatever. There's a mass shooting somewhere. Within 24 hours, there's already this complex conspiracy theory about it. And I think you can't just jump straight to that. And I'm definitely not one of these people that just dismisses things outright of, all oh, conspiracies don't happen. I mean, I, I've, I, I, I am, I'm the conspiracy guy, uh, but I do, I do the real ones. 
and there are there are sometimes the shooting is just a shooting and it's awful and but not everything is a false flag the 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 guy there is two kind of camps really i mean the people that don't think conspiracies ever happen and the ones who think they always happen are both wrong the conspiracy is every covert operation ever carried out by any intelligence agency is a conspiracy that's all it is it's organized lying and doing things that we otherwise considered illegal right so every operation the cia or mi6 or anything has ever done is a conspiracy you have people conspiring to lie to the public so they can do something that would be considered illegal those are all conspiracies. So they happen all the time. Organized crimes involved in conspiracy gets convicted for it. Any RICO stat, you know, that's a conspiracy. It's a business to do crime. So conspiracy is, I have a film called Decades of Deception on my website that goes over a 50-year timeline of known convicted conspiracies. So if you ever want ammo, someone's like, oh, conspiracy. What do you think the moon landing is fake? What? Just pop in that film and just some of them they'll know like Iran Contra and some they won't know operation washtub things like that it's pretty much par for the course but as far as the shootings and stuff it's a case-by-case thing most shootings are just shootings um and everybody blames whatever they already hate right the left will blame the guns because they don't like guns uh people who hate big pharma will blame SSRIs People will think oh, they're trying to take our guns, so they fake the whole thing because they love guns. They all just, uh, it reminds me of this episode of Star Trek, actually, where this, this guy asked them all, what's the most important invention in the last hundred years? And of course, the the weapons engineer says the phaser, the, the, um, the uh, doctors talked about some kind of medicine, and the engineer said the warp engines. It was always whatever was in their field was the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And so often when whenever there's some kind of event, a shooting, the gun people will be like, oh, my God, they faked that to take our guns. The anti-gun people will say, oh, see what guns do. The anti-drug people will be like, they were out of their mind on drugs. Now, they might be out of their mind. Like one of these groups might be correct but they're right for the wrong reason. They're just picking their, you know, they've already got a conclusion in mind before it happens. Right. So I try to look at them individually. And from my experience in the U S most shootings are not false flag. Most shootings are shootings. Uh, there have been a couple weird ones. Um, and I don't know that that's safe on Patreon either. So. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have to we're gonna have to stop here anyway. We've gone 20 minutes over time, Ryan. Really appreciate that. Conal, um, message me. I'm going to choose any of my books from Amazon, and I'm going to have that sent to you directly from Amazon. And uh, next week, if you do have a camera or phone set up whereby you will put your face on the screen with us, you will also get any of my free bo- books, uh, any of my books sent to you, one of them free from Amazon. So huge thank you for Ryan for staying on tonight for over an hour. And as usual, you know, going really deep. So please support what he's doing. We've put all of his links out there. They've been in the chat. And if you if you see any of his stuff we're doing on YouTube, all of his links are, are down there as well. So, you know, he, he appreciates your love and support. I appreciate it. It's 4 a.m. in Japan. But I love it. If you guys do end up doing the Saturday show at 10 in the morning, that's like seven in the afternoon here. That would be perfect. I'll be your Saturday guy if you want. But like, if you guys do add that show, I heard you talk about it. You weren't sure. If you what it is? It's a pre-record. That one, Ryan. It's a, it's a, it's done in the studio. Uh, yeah. But um, right. if you get your ass out to London, we could get you in the studio. I went there once. 
Um, I don't the travel restrictions. I don't want to go to Europe right now. It's like, uh, I I don't like wearing face diapers and all that stuff. So <laughs> I'm just <laughs> I live in a free country. Why would I go to there? Yeah. <laughs> but if it, if all, when all that clears up, I'd love to come to the UK and meet the crew and all that. And Definitely, I, I'd like to go to Ireland again too. Yeah. yeah place guys right. if you want to know about 9-11 and not just a, another film about building seven fell too fast and look weird if you want serious serious research on september 11th uh ash just put the link in the empire and mast and that also helps our site and research into epstein and all these other things it's um it's been my life's work unraveling that and JFK. Like I've spent more time on those two things uh, than any other event. Uh, so <laughs> that I'd appreciate it. If you just want to donate to the site, just consider getting the movie. It's five hours or it's four hours and 58 minutes. So you might take a couple sittings or whatever, but you watch 10 minutes, you watch the whole thing. Some people like I watched it five times. It, it hits on everything. And there are people that have been looking at 9-11 stuff for 10, 12 years. And like, I didn't know any of this stuff. Like, I know. Because it's always the same circle. Building 7 fell too fast. It looks like squibs are making bombs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't talk about the physics at all. Because it's been done to death. I'm going to give you the rest of the story. Empire Unmasked. That, that's what you need to watch if you want to get it. And help us out at ANC Report. I got a lot of nerds I got to pay, so... <laughs> all right thanks brother you get uh, some sleeping at least tonight then cheers hope so all the best sean thank you take care ryan bye-bye bye peace in palestine thanks so if you are watching and you've been enjoying this evening so far the offer stands if you want to join us with donal or matthew steeples if you want to put your face on the screen you're going to get a free copy of any of my books sent to you directly from amazon and I need Donald to get in touch with his address, mailing address for that. Um, we've got, got Conal, sorry, Conal. Conal and Donald, how's this happened? We've got, our next guest is Donald. And our previous viewer on the screen was Conal. Yes, synchronicity. Matthew Stevens has joined us. He is here. Good evening. Okay, let me bring Donald in right now. Let's see. Da, 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 da. Page five, I believe. Not on page five. There's Matthew. We're getting to you, Matthew, in about 30 minutes. That's next page. Next page. Okay, page five. Got him. So Donald has expertise in many true crime subjects. He's going to be coming in right now. Let me know in the chat if you want to join us on the screen. And if you do have a question for Donald, I know we're backed up with questions for Ryan. I'm going to start deleting these. If you... Hello, Donal. How are you? How are you? Uh, How are you? Uh, well, I mean, or Conal, or as they <laughs> say, kind of the English and American audience always say to me, they say, uh, what's your name? And I say, it's Donal. And they say, 
what? And they don't, they don't really get it. And then one person said to me, in fact, Javine, I think she, she was a singer. I appeared on Come Dine With Me with her. And she said to me, um, uh, and I said, it's kind of Donald without the D. And she said, Arnold. And I said, much better. So Arnold <laughs> McIntyre joins you. <laughs> so to so the people who are not familiar with your work, Donald, could you just tell a little people, um, tell them a bit about you, what, what you've done over the years? Well, I'm an investigative reporter and have been uh, polluting uh, screens from BBC <laughs> to BBC Channel 5, ITV, Discovery, CBS Reality, uh, Discovery uh, since 1993, when my first investigation uh, for On the Line, a sports investigative strand, um, which I did investigations into corruption in greyhound racing, horse racing, um, and various other incidents. And gravitated into hardcore current affairs and probably best known for undercover investigations into the Chelsea headhunters, into drug gangs, uh, into the fashion industry, uh, care homes, as well as um, after that stint, about a 11 or 12 year stint as the most recognizable undercover reporter <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> That's not an oxymoronic term. Um, uh, so I survived without recognition as an undercover reporter uh, for, from World in Action in 1995-96, all the way up to International Undercover Strand for, in 2005 for, for, for uh, Channel 5. And uh, since that time, I did a lot of access documentaries with major gangland figures, uh, Dominic Noonan, Get uh, um, Conroy, uh, uh, Andrew Pritchard, an old friend of, uh, of yours. And of course, you know, we've had uh, the tax man. So I think uh, I, I met some of your friends um, uh, in long form documentary on TV. So we, we certainly tread much of the same path. But I never went undercover into you, man, in Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if you'd have blocked me. <laughs> you clocked me undercover, I'm sure, if you weren't too high. They tried to infiltrate us, and we saw them coming in the police reports when we were all arrested. They said they couldn't. They used all the techniques. They couldn't infiltrate us. That's how they got the wiretap authorized. Um, if people are not familiar with Andrew Pritchard, then we just put out a, a four-hour podcast, 100 million um, Coke Kingpins Redemption. So I'd urge people to go over and watch that on the YouTube channel. Now, the biggest true crime story on this channel is Epstein, Maxwell, Jean-Luc Brunel. So I'll start out because we've got some overlap there. You've looked at Brunel and some of the modeling stuff that went on in France, haven't you? Yeah, so basically um, I did a program uh, back in 1999 and uh, that program invested, went undercover in the fashion industry. Rather preposterously, I went undercover as a photographer and ended up being uh, one of the world's, uh, having taken some of the world's worst photographs ever of Naomi Campbell and Kate Moss on my journey into the heart of the industry and into the heart of the men who predate and uh, who we claim uh, were sexual predators in that industry. And this was a, a key target with a guy called Gerald Marie. And he's the subject of a, a core program on Australia 60 Minutes um, uh, this Sunday. And uh, certainly uh, the world of elite Jean-Luc Brunel, Epstein, and those links are, 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 um, are quite well-traveled. 
uh, and we're still investigating those links, but uh, for our purposes, we are still trying to concentrate. Yes, you can. Uh, uh, we're still with two seconds. Parental duties. Apologies. There you are. Good adult. Um, apologies. Uh, uh, anybody who's used to Zoom understands exactly what, what goes on there. So basically, this whole world, I mean, the world of fashion and the world of, uh, I mean, uh, looking back on the day, here is the reality. A, a part of the fashion industry today, in the way it operated, will be called trafficking. Simple answer. Young models, believing in their dreams, were um, fostered out, you know, trafficked to wealthy men who would take their opportunities, and if these women resisted, then their chances of, of success in the fashion industry would be diminished by men who trafficked them. And this is the reality. And, um, uh, and the, the, the disaster was that when our program in 1999 went out, like any investigative program, you're going to get brickbacks and legal action and everything. And that's part of the the scars and warfare of taking on big targets, big companies, powerful people. But uh, um, BBC settled, and I think, and I was never party to the settlement of the BBC, and they settled uh, on a litigation against elite, well, two elite, three elite companies. I think none of those companies actually exist anymore, but certainly the entity and the brand still does. And they uh, renounce any engagement with that past behavior, just to put it out there. But the reality is they have a, there's a heritage attached to the elite brand name, which uh, we will revisit in Australian 60 Minutes. But I think the dark side of fashion, which um, indeed CBS 60 Minutes in, in the States tackled as far back as 1988. And it, 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 it was an interesting show. And then everyone forgot about it. Our show came out. And it did make mar uh, a mark, and then the BBC settlement rendered the, the, the examination of sexual abuse in the fashion industry null and void, and it basically, it basically retarded all investigative journalism in that arena for two decades. And that meant that for two decades, because of a very weak BBC settlement, um, which, which even as a BBC employee, and I've worked on and off with the BBC since 1993 to 2017, from whether it's uh, uh, um, my own radio show and BBC, you know, and I think the BBC are the greatest broadcast in the world. But in that respect, they got it wrong, and, and crucially, brutally wrong, because if the BBC are to settle, even though we take no damages to Elite, then that is a warning to every journalist to say, stand clear. And for two decades they did, until, I think, uh, now. And I think the... Epstein uh, and Weinstein and the Me Too movement has opened the doors. But even when the, when the Weinstein movement opened the doors, it still wasn't knocking on the door of fashion. And I think still, there's a, you know, um, it's extraordinary. Still, you know, the truth of, of fashion is yet to come out. So with your experience with the BBC then, what is your perspective on how they covered up the crimes of Jimmy Savile? Well, I... I, I, I'm not on top of Jimmy Savile, although I did write about that for the Sunday World when I reported upon them. And I think it was common knowledge, uh, even among the medics in Jimmy, that Jimmy Savile was spending an awful lot of time among the dead bodies and 
was a necrophiliac and had spent a great deal of time around there. And I remember when he died, I was contacting Jimmy's hospital and they were saying, oh, nothing to see here. But I remember I'd spoken to a surgeon who had told me in explicit terms two or three years or even four years beforehand uh, exactly what he was doing. And then, of course, then uh, and the hospital just said, oh, nothing to see here, no. And then, of course, in t two years later, a report disclosed that he they were concerned that he was interfering with the bodies in the mortuary part of the hospital. So, I mean, there's no doubt that there was a culture, and this is not an area of expertise, but quite clearly a very dangerous predatory culture uh, among uh, that was allowed to foster. And I think uh, among Jimmy Savile and a number, one or two of his accolades, and others, powerful men mostly, who were allowed and afforded a kind of 90, a kind of ownership of any women or girls or employees who came within their ambit. And people who challenged that were crushed. Now, Jimmy Savile was a gangster. He wasn't just a DJ. He was a gangster. He rang his nightclubs and he rang with he rang his nightclubs with a um, absolute reign of terror, and he put on. And then he was incredibly. If you understand, watch how he operated. He befriended the police, right? He befriended the hospitals. He befriended the royalty. If you built a picture of trying to how to win friends and influence people, right? This is what he did. But behind that, there was muscle. I mean, he threatened people in Leeds and in Yorkshire. And, you know, and then what he would do, he would threaten them because he'd access to, he, remember, he had every Friday, I think it was, or he had his Friday club with a number of serving officers and ex-officers who bolstered him, protected him, I'm sure. They, you know, who knows? But they certainly were part of that club. And it's hard to be around that world without thinking for one second, this is weird. He is weird. Right, okay. Now, this, you know, this is a... A broad church the world so being weird does not mean being dangerous but this was a man who there was so much so many whispers around you know i never worked in in shiny floor and entertainment so he was when i was in the bbc didn't hear anything about that because we were i was undercover doing my own stuff but i think quite clearly um quite clearly um uh quite clearly the 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 behavior of of uh of um, Savile was known to plenty of people in the BBC. You know. Did you watch the Johnny Rotten clip? No. Yeah, he's talking about how he was banned from Top of the Pops for trying to expose Savile. Mm. Well, I knew uh, uh, I know Louis Theroux, and Louis made a good go at you know at the time, you know. And I think if you ask Louis, and I know he returned to it as he often does, Louis returned to it, and he felt that. Uh, that, you know, this was something he got away, but this is somebody, remember, this is somebody who kept his mother's body in his own house for a week before he buried her after she died. I mean, openly and told people this. This is somebody, you know, who told, who, um, uh, so, uh, you know, I think it's, it is, it is pretty, you know, shocking. Um, but, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there is more stuff to come out of there in relation to his involvement uh, in Broadmoor. And as a young reporter, I managed to gain access to Broadmoor. And um, and it was extraordinary. If you go to Broadmoor, I used to did back in around 1988, 1990. I went in, a friend of mine was a nurse and brought me in as a trainee nurse just for a day out. 
and I went in there and I was say I wasn't a journalistic mission, but um, certainly Sutcliffe was there. And the, the although you, there were doors there, you, when you went into Broadmoor back in the day, there were dances, there were socials between you know Sutcliffe and and uh, Myra Hindley, for example. I mean, there, this was like a you know uh, there was you know you couldn't imagine you know a, a, a more incongruous setting for some of the most dangerous people this country's ever seen. And there was a kind of there would have been uh, and of course, this was a mental health provision rather than a punitive provision. You know, they were patients; they weren't prisoners. So, you know, and they, it was a very and it's, it is an important, it's an important um, delineation. But of course, if it's abused, then uh, um, uh, then it should, it, you know, it, it shouldn't happen. But when you think and imagine what what access he had. So he had the run of Broadmoor, his own flat there, his only room there. He had the run of Jimmy's Hospital, right, the mortuary and children. He had the run of damaged and, uh, um, people and murderers and rapists and, and killers. So he had, he had every opportunity to indulge his fantasies and, and actual, uh, actualize his fantasies with the dead bodies in Jimmy's, the children in Jimmy's, his charitable work, pop the pop, and whatever else he got up to in Broadmoor. Well, as well as all that, he had the highest access to the royal circles. In Princess Diana's book, she said that Jimmy Savile was brought in as a marriage guidance counsellor for her and Charles, and she found him creepy. So surely the royal family, to get access, you know, at that level, you've got to have background checks, MI5, whatever. Wouldn't they have known what he was getting up to? Well, I think, remember, the same can be said. Uh, who was it? Was it Cyril, um, our man at the Liberal Party, the big uh, uh, paedophile? Who was, Cyril Smith. Uh, Cyril Smith, the big, you know, uh, he would have inevitably gone through all these checks. You have to understand is that there's a whole, whole range of people in power were, for whom, you know, of crimes against children, it was just seen as what some cops did. And what people did, and it was kind of, I'm sure a lot of the authorities just, you know, dismissed it. And of course, um, but there's no rationalizing the friendship, you know, and who could possibly think that this man, this pedophile, this sex offender, this brutal uh, uh, entertainer, whose reign of terror among generations of women and, and God knows who else. You know, who would have thought that he would be designated a uh, marriage counselor? Yeah, yeah, there's no explaining that. There is no explaining that. They're really, I just, uh, you know, and, I, and of course the family, I don't think Royal family, you know, listen, it happens, you know, that all of a sudden you come in, that people come into your, uh, uh, into your circle. But I think what's quite clear is that, um, you know, you know, the, I think that was a desperate time for, for that particular family in terms of, you know, a crisis. And maybe he could, you know, but uh, certainly it's something they regret. You know. I don't think it speaks anything of the royal family. Or it just, just speaks of the people around him who did not protect, protect their family and Prince Charles and Diana from him. You know. um, but the people who were culpable were the people in power, be they MI5 or 
other authorities who knew and turned a blind eye. And I, I, and I don't know enough about who, who they were, but I think, I, I think when we increasingly look at these particular cases, and you look at Epstein and Weinstein, you increasingly look at the, the powerful people. So obviously there are weak people who suffer abuse, there are weak people who can't fight, but those who are powerful contenders who chose not to stand up and fight and say, and, and, and stand up and be counted, you know, and I think, uh, uh, and there certainly haven't been enough of people uh, like that. When people do that, um, when people do that, stand up and are counted, often they're shot down, but, you know, uh, 20 years later, uh, you know, decades later, often when the target is now dead, right, so justice is delayed and justice is denied, um, and we've seen this in countless kind of Inquiries were not related to child sexual abuse, but you've seen it in Hillsborough. We've seen it, you know, in a whole number of other inquiries where justice is delayed and justice is denied. But I mean, good people stand up and are shot down. So I think we have to salute those who have fought the long fight in many of these inquiries, and uh, even if um, the truth only percolated out after a long while. So on this channel, I've interviewed Epstein survivor Maria Farmer. I've corresponded with Virginia on Twitter. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are then on Andrew's, Prince Andrew's BBC interview that he did in response to the allegations from Virginia. Well, I spoke recently to some of the journalists who are involved in the Australia 60 Minutes program with Virginia and also, but it's quite clear that the Andrew interview um, was uh, the decision to do it was a foolhardy uh, if you're just going to take it from a PR perspective and you know I'm not going to address the allegations because I don't know enough about them but just from a PR perspective you would imagine it's the most foolhardy or arrogant decision and and I think it kind of is an extension of the fact that that circle uh, of uh, within royal supporters really don't understand TV that you know they didn't understand it. it still is the magic room uh, uh, box in the corner of the room they didn't understand how it was made when you think of it you know and you think of their engagement uh, with it over the years um, you know it, it just was uh, foolhardy from a PR point of view and, and, and I think rightfully the PR representative you know got canned as a result on the other hand you know in terms of giving the public a window onto so from the public perspective journalistic perspective it was a wonderful coup i thought you know newsnight and did a wonderful job it was a fantastic uh, coup to get it and i thought the questioning was very robust and uh, sincere and i think what's interesting with those kind of programs it's normally kind of you get a chance to ask somebody like that questions like a door uh, it's like a doorstep, or as the Australians would call it, a bound, the, the confrontation. And it's the questions that are important, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's the question. But in this case, and very rarely do you get, ever get anything for the answers. In this case, there seemed to be an attempt to kind of rationalize uh, this engagement with Epstein post his conviction. Uh, and uh, then a, con a kind of, it uh, seemed to be a, a discussion discussions about you know where he might have been 10 years previously and and it just it, it just didn't ring true that so much other material 
you know, which is part of the, you know, most people can't remember exactly what they did yesterday, that all of a sudden have a photographic memory of exactly what happened 10 years ago in the Peach Express restaurant in Woking. So, I mean, you just say, well, listen, the reality is, I mean, if, if you take it that he's completely innocent and innocent and proven guilty, if you take, take that position, then you have to simply say, you know, it, it, it's, uh, he's entirely reasonable to say, listen, guys, I don't remember. I have a very busy life. I meet hundreds of thousands of people every year. I do hundreds of thousands of things, but, you know, um, I didn't do anything inappropriate and, uh, you know, there's nothing to see here, God. You know, and if I don't remember something, it just, that doesn't mean that, that what somebody claims happened. It just means that, like the rest of us, I didn't remember. So, uh, you know, badly advised, um, extraordinarily badly advised. Yeah. What do you think it, the outcome is going to be it, for Glenn Maxwell? Oh, well, I mean, I think she's going to never going to see uh, uh, the outside of the jail uh, again. Uh, what surprises me about this is that she obviously had an opportunity to jump ship. She could have gone to Israel. She could have gone, to, you know, and uh, where her father was buried in the Mount of Olives and, um, and could have uh, stayed there and lived a very wealthy life, kind of immune from extradition, immune from prosecution for the rest of her life. And again, you know, it seems to me why she didn't do that, I have no idea. And I, 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 it seems to me that, that maybe that strikes, speaks of an arrogance, you know, because the circles, you know, is ever decreased. She was living in a world of ever decreasing circles, right? It was coming home to, to, to haunt her. And maybe she thought that she'd been living in this circle and whirlwind of allegations for nearly 15 years from Epstein's first court appearances. And she'd been living and she was able to deflect it. And every which way she turned, you know, uh, she got uh, um, immunity, you know, in relation to the, 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 his Floridian engagements and convictions. And she just thought she was going to be immune uh, for life. And... Um, uh, but even when, you know, once he was arrested, again, it surprised me that she didn't jump ship. You know, I mean, even if she, you accept, again, innocent until proven guilty, but the allegations are getting so heavy and so descriptive, and the number of victims are lining up, right, and there comes, it reaches a critical threshold, right, the evidence is so profound, you'd imagine that, you know, you know, would she risk American justice? And then again, the thought that she... The, that she might anticipate bail. The th you know, I don't know what you did, you know, the thought that she, did she really think she was going to get bail, John? Is that something that she could realistically have hoped for? I think she's just getting drained by her lawyers because they've tried four times now. So we, we have lost your video, Donal. So you, we're okay. getting asked if you could just put your mouth closer to the microphone so we can hear you sure. better. Yeah, yeah, no worries, no worries. Okay, so what do you think is going to happen with her? Because I mean, you're the world, you genuinely are the world expert, Sean. We <laughs> talk about this all the time. You're the world expert on this, and it's, it's intriguing. And I think the reason why it's particularly intriguing is this is where power meets the criminal justice system. It's very rare it happens. It's deflected, it's abused, lawyers, money, payoffs. You know, the crimes of the wealthy and powerful are not the same, are not treated the same way as the crimes of the poor and destitute, you know. That pe people and power 
they get away with their crimes. But in this case, it's so graphic, and in the modern media world, it's all there for all to see. Where, where do you think it's going? And combined with murder mystery as well, it's got that JFK factor, hasn't it, whereby massive names, nobody knows what happened, for sure the night Epstein died. So it creates endless speculation. Um, as far as the legal situation is concerned, it's a battle for plea bargaining power at this point. So she's got all of these resources. She's got this, you know, powerful legal team. But unfortunately for her, the judge has been ruling against her consistently, not giving the legal team much play at all. So she is losing plea bargaining power over time. You mentioned the arrogance of the people who move in these circles. That arrogance, there's going to become a moment of truth. As the trial date nears, if, there's, if it's not moved again, it was just moved to November 29th today. If that trial date is concrete and that moment of truth arrives, she has to ask herself, do I want to roll the dice and risk never, ever getting out? Or should I just capitulate and sign a plea bargain? And the sentencing range within that plea bargain will be determined by her plea bargaining, bargaining strength at that time. It's been reduced by the additional charges in the indictment. That, that you know, um, even more victims could come forward, which could make it worse for her. But she also has that treasure trove of political capital whereby she knows what some serious players did in terms of untoward, let's say, activity, um, as, as Charles likes to, to call it, but with minors. So she could really um, throw some people under the bus, whether that would be a um, in the interest of national security. I doubt it. So there's probably going to be some resolution at the last minute to prevent a trial, to prevent those names from being mentioned in court, because then the court, the government would have to take certain action against them. So she could find um, plea bargaining power by offering to cooperate. I think, I mean, it is interesting that um, uh, even with a plea bargain, it's hard to imagine how she could plea bargain her way out to less than 20 years, in which case she'll be, you know, in her 80s or 80, and, you know, she is now, you know, and she'll be spent 20 years in the general population. That's where she's going to go. And so it seems that her, her um, any plea bargain, I can't see that, you know, uh, I can't see that actually saving much time. I mean, uh, she, uh, how is she getting on in prison? I know she, what happened with her black eye. I saw that reported. Well, I wrote the life story of a mafia associate of the Bonanno crime family who was serving 141 years. And he used to tell me about the old mafia bosses and even some of the um, lower players would show up in court with oxygen masks. One was even wheeled into court on a hospital bed. So she's playing the medical card, we believe, right now. And But it's not tremendously successfully because of course the judge will have seen this card being played before um you can't imagine that for any district attorney 
that uh, that any uh, kind of latitude is given to her for for certainly her alleged crimes. I mean, it just uh, it just just is extraordinary. Uh, do you actually think if you were a betting man, and I know you're not, but if you were, would what are the odds that she's going to make trial? I would bet right now. 95 percent that it ends in a plea bargain what are, what are the odds and this is a desperate question to ask but bearing in mind you know one half of her co-conspirator is dead what is the likelihood that she will make it alive to trial either by suicide or by murder or anything else i mean the thing about it is where uh, if if the powerful broker is involved in this and if she knows, if there are tapes, and if she knows where those tapes are, which, she may, which may be a collateral. I mean, maybe if you built a picture of why somebody like this would act so arrogantly and didn't flee and didn't go to Israel and didn't escape with her millions, right, and thought that she could brazen it out, you know, might you have thought that she had collateral? Because you could easily measure, add that up. I've got collateral, I'm arrogant, I'm not going to flee, um, or she's entirely innocent. But the reality is you can make the case for the fact that she's acting like somebody initially who had collateral. So if she has that collateral, that does two things. It does make her powerful. On the other hand, it makes her very vulnerable in equal measure. Yeah, so I think it's 50-50 that she will remain alive. Uh, trial, no trial, whether she gets sentenced or not. It's like when Kenneth Lay got arrested i um i was asked about that right away and i said there's no way this guy's ever going to go to trial he was george bush's biggest contributor at one point in time and that money was all coming in based on criminal activity so she is an absolute liability to some of the most powerful wealthiest connected people in the world and um that's why my book's coming out at the end of this month actually who killed epstein Prince Andrew or Bill Clinton, which examines the likelihood of an ex-president or a royal family member being a co-conspirator in Epstein's assassination. Well, I have to say that that I'd love to see that libel action. You know, Sean Atwood. I can see it now, and I've been in a couple of libel actions. Sean Atwood versus you know uh, President Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew. <laughs> I, I suspect that. However, they viewed uh, your book. Um, uh, there's, it's highly like unlikely that they would um, uh, uh, sue. Um, I mean that. Is, I mean, but the fact that you can publish a book like that with those names sent to stage, right? Okay, without fear or favor of libel action, because they're just not going to go for you. Because <laughs> the risk of going, if it's innocent or not, is to just allow allow you to unfurl detail about their activities which they wouldn't want the light shone on however legal or, or illegal so that's never going to happen so uh but it just these are extraordinary times in respect of this you know and the free press you know and uh, uh of course the libel laws are much different here than they are in the u.s in the u.s you get away with that here because of the the stain attached to epstein and the toxicity that even people who are labeled and kind of, you know, won't go there, you know. But how how long will it take? And this is interesting. We've I've always said the truth of many of these scandals, it kind of nearly takes 25 years. 
it takes a generation to, for the real truth to come out and to unfurl itself, right? And so um, I think you, you think and believe that you're skirting the surface here and the real truth about who was involved, what happened, uh, how it happened, will only really come out in another quarter century. Yeah, well, hopefully technology is helping to accelerate that. We've got our next guest ready to come on, Donal. Is there anything else you would like to talk about? You've got a very British gangster documentary. Um, you've had all your McIntyre Underworld stuff. You've got series um, coming up. Is there anything you'd like to plug or, or talk about before we move on? No, listen, not at all. Listen, have a great one. I look forward to coming back again, as ever. Sean, you're a classy professional. Take care. Oh, thank you very much for spending time with us this evening. Really appreciate it, Donal. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. And we're going to include all of Donal's links in the description box below the video. So please let him know. You know, you saw him on the channel. And um, this makes these guests more likely to want to come back on when they know there is some follow-through from the viewers when you subscribe to their socials. And when you let them know that you found them on this channel, really appreciate. Uh, we really appreciate you, any of you guys who do that. And it makes my work, it makes Ashy's work much easier as we build these relationships with our guests, some of whom are reoccurring guests, reoccurring with increasing frequency. And I'm referring to Mr. Matthew Steeples. Let's find him in the people's room there he is if you did not see the true crime podcast that went out on saturday it just went through it's about fifty thousand views right now it's going straight up it is called maxwell mccann and the menendez brothers and we've had a fantastic response so far. If you want over two hours of solid steeples, please check out that podcast. We had a Jimmy Savile clip that also went viral right away. And here he is. Thank you for coming back so soon, Matthew. Oh, well, um, well, I'm glad you've managed to find me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was lovely to have lunch with you yesterday and, um, you know, spend time in person, I think. That's what we all need in reality and the future is as we get back to normal in life, we need time with human beings. It was and absolutely people. lovely. The sun was out, the river was right there, the food was they delicious. The food, it was pretty awful, but uh, <laughs> the place, the place, you know, well. It's the company, it's the company that mattered. The company was all that mattered. <laughs> but, uh, now your last guest, what a fantastic person very interesting things he had to say. Um, yeah, I think uh, Miss Maxwell, the next chapter is very, very curious. And what are your thoughts on the news that just came out November 29th trial date? Well, I think, you know, her behavior is typically stupid. You know, she she's gone on about Thanksgiving. She's gone on about um, Christmas, poor old jurors. Poor old family, poor old this, poor old that. Doesn't do her any favors, does it? This no, woman, it doesn't. This woman just shows herself yet again to be arrogant. She has no concept of how ordinary people live. It's all about me, me, me. 
oh, my family can't come to court. Well, if she were from a councillor stating witness, <laughs> she wouldn't be given that opportunity, would she? <laughs> when you were put on trial, were you given that opportunity to say, my family can't come on that date? You know what? Uh, my family came on a date, flew 5,000 miles, and that date was actually cancelled after yeah. they'd, they'd already got into the country. But she is saying of the dates that she's offered, uh, my family can't do this, it's not fair, because they're very important people. And it's too near Christmas and Thanksgiving oh. and all this stuff. Well, so what if they can't get to their turkey party? <laughs> I don't feel sorry for them. And does anybody else? What kind, what kind of a legal argument is that? That's insanity. Totally mad argument. <laughs> because she's rich. She's got 28 and a half million. But where did she get that from? And I keep coming back to this, as I said to you yesterday. Where did she get that money from in the first place? Let's go back to the deeper question. How has Miss Maxwell got this money? Where it's, is the money from? It certainly needs to be scrutinized as much as Epstein's over what was it, 600 million almost? It's worth the estate was worth at its peak. The taxi driver teacher who happened to live in a 50 million pound house. Lovely thing that. How did he get that? <laughs> How do all these people get this money? <laughs> there are a lot of loony people out there who may say, "Oh well, you know, she's she's just she's just a decent person and all the rest of it." I can assure you, it does not make sense. Where has this money come from? And we have to go back to the the real question. The money of Miss Maxwell, the money of Jeffrey Epstein, where did this dirty money come from? Because these people, whatever comes out next, there is filthy money. And you think a large portion of that came from the pension fraud by the father? pension fraud is the key source of how those two got the money. Um, other people involved in it, God knows where they got their money from. This Leslie Wexner, I don't know. I, I, I don't know much about him. Um, you know, people like Kirby Summers, great work she's done researching people like him. She knows more about him. But I would say I know more about... Um, Epstein and Maxwell's dirty money. And it's plain, the five, plainly clear, the 500 million pounds somehow got to New York. And that's how she somehow funded her filthy lifestyle. And yes, there are lots of people who we, we know who say that she's a good person and she isn't a criminal and she's she's just been used like everyone else. But I will say very clearly, once again, she has the same traits as her father. She uses fake names. 
She called herself Jennifer Marshall. She called herself Janet Marshall. Um, her dad uh, murdered people. He was a traitor to various countries. He he, he made, became a Labour MP. He was dodgy there. He then ran a dodgy publishing company. He stole from the pensioners. She stole money, I believe. I, I really do think she's a thief. She's just like her dad. And, you know, I know people who are friends of her brothers and sisters, and I've met brothers and sisters. I will say now, categorically, she is a bad person. And I'm not going to change my view whether I'm told by socialites and whoever that I shouldn't make have opinions and you know who I'm talking about. But I I I don't like the woman. I think the woman is deviant. And Channel Four have been to see me, as I've told you. And Channel Four said to me, Oh, we know about the filming in nineteen ninety four by the 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 um uh, the police and they knew the building together it all starts to add up and she can't make this go away she is a bad person and i'm not going to stop calling her the mucky madam i like calling her the mucky madam and kirby summer seems to think that's brilliant and then so do many other people on twitter I will continue to call this woman the mucky madam. Her father was abusive to me uh, when I was young, and he was very rude. And I don't like that man either. And he stole from pensioners. And that's what got me interested in him in the first place. So let's be honest here. I think the Maxwell family can do all they want, and they can continue to deny, and they continue to delay but what needs to happen now is the trial needs to go ahead. She can delay Turkey until Thanksgiving. She can delay Turkey till Christmas. But frankly, it's time to get on with it. And your other guests may say, well, it's going to get stopped. She has to get to trial. They cannot stop this trial because we can't have another Jeffrey Epstein another dead body. I don't think that's realistic. I actually think that's crazy. I'm not like a lot of the conspiracy theorists who believe that this will stop. She has to go to trial. Now, she may be innocent. I personally don't believe it, but that's my view. That's just my personal opinion. But we cannot waste more time waiting for her her whim and it's it's good that the 29th of november has been set yeah but this other date was set and it's like musical chairs isn't it well of course and she may uh, the date could be changed again and i i know you, you you have different views to me but i i think that this date should go ahead and it would be a good thing if it did and i've spoken with the people who've asked me to go to America today, and um, I'll happily go to America on that date, and I'll happily face her in the court and 
speak about it, but not that I'm an important person. I'm just a person who might be there. But I will go there and talk about it, and I will be present. Wow, that will be absolutely fascinating, and hopefully we can um, live stream you in from there as well. Well, you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows who's allowed in with her in her court cases? Perhaps from the courthouse steps. Yes, well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. So you've, you've just piqued people's curiosity then. You mentioned that you suffered some form of abuse at the hands of Ghislaine Maxwell's dad, Robert Maxwell. Are you able to share that story with the viewers? Uh, when I was younger, Mr. Maxwell, I did meet the father a long, long time ago, and he he was uh, he was very he shouted some abuse at me. But I, I don't want to go too much into how that happened. But that—that that is the reason I don't like the man. A horrible, a, horrible man. We've got a very serious question of, has come here from Carol right. Talloway. She said that um, could Maxwell's trial be delayed because the 25th is Turkey Day and the day after is the Macy's Parade Day? <laughs> Uh, Could I, Macy's Parade come into play here? I don't think I don't think a department store can stop a trial. To be honest, but, but maybe Miss the, the lady you mentioned, maybe she knows something we don't know. But I, I I can't see how a department store can stop a trial. But but maybe this lady knows something. Got another very serious uh, question from Ash. <laughs> and Ash has refused to come on on the screen this week, but he has committed to next week. So everybody watching, let's hold let's hold him to it next week. Um, I have had 126 emails asking if we can raffle off Matthew's orange jumper. Can we make this a reality, please? He wants to raffle off my jumper. <laughs> well, I'm not wearing an orange jumper today, so he can't raffle off that one, can he? Um, if he wants to raffle off one of my orange jumpers, he can. Yes, with pleasure. Is that if plural? It's, it's plural? My, plural. How, how, how many orange jumpers do you have? I have, I have multiple orange jumpers. I love orange. Wow. And the person that said I, I, um, I matched my jumpers to the building behind me, you can see behind me the building isn't orange, so I don't know who they were, but you know, the orange jumper doesn't really match the building. I've got a, a few orange jumpsuits here. I don't know about you if you have oh, a yeah, you got, well, Can I have one of your orange jumpsuits? Yeah, yeah, I'll dig one out, absolutely. Right, there we go. Well, I'll give you an orange jumper in exchange for an orange jumpsuit. <laughs> Trees are wild wants to know. Has Matthew come across any connections between Maxwell and the tax exile John Whitaker? I've never heard of John Whitaker, so I don't know. I've never heard of that of John Whitaker either. All John right, Whitaker so means nothing to me, I'm afraid. But but please ask this lady if she would like to contact me. She's very welcome to email me, and we can discuss this. Uh, I've never heard of him, so. So the contact links will be below the video. Um, there's Twitter down there, and there is the website as well for the Steeples Times. G Gigi wants to know, uh, Matthew, is Maxwell the top of the pyramid? I think Maxwell is far more important than Jeffrey Epstein. I keep saying that. Um, I believe that um, 
Jeffrey Epstein was, you know, a taxi driver teacher, not that important. I think that the missing five hundred million pounds from the family fund, uh that is more interesting than anything that Jeffrey Epstein ever did. Gigi's sent a follow up question and that is who do you think is above Ghislaine Maxwell, and I don't know Maria Farmer called Wexner the head of the snake. Well, well, that that I I don't know that much about the that, but I would say there are obviously different business entities who she's connected with, but I think it's actually her. I think she's the most important. I actually really think let's go after her. Let's get her convicted of what she's done. She's the important one for now. The things to do with Leslie Wexner, Prince Andrew, all the rest, I don't know if they'll ever, ever get, get through, but she can be convicted. She is awaiting trial, and she is a crook. And her father stole... 500 million pounds that's never been found she has never explained her own telling lies about her fake names all the rest of it we are dealing with people who are very similar like father like daughter and if you read the book of eleanor berry you know eleanor berry talks about how you know she was victimized by her father and abused and often they say the victim becomes the abuser. And I see a pattern with Miss Maxwell that relates to her father. And I think she is the bad person in all of this. I think let's go to the source of the problem. Let's get the source of the problem convicted before we go after anything else. Because, frankly, all the rest of it is distraction which parallels what John Sweeney said about the sadomasochistic streak being passed down from the psychopathic father and the corporal punishment, etc. The, the, the father was an evil man, and she is an evil woman. She treated people very badly. And yes, some of the people you and I both know say that she's a, oh, she's a lovely woman and she's very nice and whatever. Well, I don't know about that. Let's see. But that comes out in her trial. But I will say, you know, the evidence I have seen is that she has abused young people. She trafficked them. She brought them there. She brought them in and she happily, willingly did what she wanted because Mr. Epstein paid her money and paid her paid for her to live a nice lifestyle. So Amanda wants to know, Matthew, whether you believe in the shadow government, a.k.a. the deep state. Well, I don't know what the shadow government, the deep state is, but uh, who are they? Okay, so they would conventionally be defined as invisible to the public, powerful entities that pull the strings of the politicians. So you're saying people who fund the politicians and they manipulate them. Yes, that they will be part of it, and then they also use the intelligence well, I believe, agencies. Yes, uh, 
Miss Maxwell would have had connections with such people. I don't yes. know how deep her connections were. I think in England, her connections were probably weaker. Her connections in America were probably stronger because she didn't live in England. And the intelligence agencies would be like the enforcement arm of the deep state. Yep. Um, so, but in the end, it didn't work out for her, did, did it? Because she's been arrested and she's in prison. So, so it hasn't worked out well for her. Gail wants to know, do you believe that she was a handler working for an intelligence agency? And if so, which one? Um, I, I think her, her, her motivation was more personal connections and personal power than working for an agency. Okay, so Jeff wants to know, Hi, Matthew. What's the connection between Mandelson, Campbell, and Blair? Mandelson, Campbell, and Blair, well, they were all part of the Labour Party. That's pretty obvious. Um, but um, Mandelson, Mandelson and Epstein, uh, their weird connection is very curious. The fact that, you know, they went to the same island together and on a little holiday, very odd. Wasn't Mendelssohn doing, like, business dealings with Epstein um, after the sweetheart deal and, and you know, he had Epstein had to just pick up the, the phone? After the, uh, the arrest, yes. So he met him on that island. I, but it wasn't his island. It was somebody else's, you know, some other island. Um there is something odd about their connection. You know, why would you want... And equally, I've had things sent to me about Sakir Starmer and his connections with the same organisation that, that Epstein was a member of. And they, there are lots of connections between these people, but it doesn't... But there are lots of members of all these organisations, you have to admit. But, but the one thing that connects more Mandelson and... Um, Epstein is they were in the same shop together buying a belt. That's that that's that's a sign of friendship. They were together. Um, you know, they say, "Oh, Tony Blair." Well, I've never seen a photograph of Tony Blair with um, Jeffrey Epstein or Ghislaine Maxwell, for that matter. Tony Blair is nothing to do with it. But Jeffrey Epstein and Mandelson have been photographed together in a shop buying a belt. That's not exactly, you, you know, you and I, we had lunch yesterday together. It was very lovely. You know, we're, we're friends. And, you know, if we'd gone around the corner and bought a belt and had a photograph together, then somebody could have used that photograph and said, oh, well, those two are very connected. And, and that's how it works. But Mr. Blair is not guilty of what Mr. Mandelson's guilty of, which is being in, well, Lord Mandelson, I should say. I should, shouldn't should insult the poor man by not giving him his title. Um, he, 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 he was in the shop with his friend buying the belt. Perhaps next time we have lunch, 
Matthew, we should go and buy matching jackets. I know we'll go and buy a matching pair of shoes or whatever. I know your your viewers love my shoes for some reason and my orange jumper for some reason. So <laughs> we can go and do this. We can we can do that and we can be photographed and then they can use it against us. Um, but but honestly, I I think no Mandelson and Epstein were photographed together, jokingly buying a white belt in some holiday resort and Oops, looks, looks like your internet's cutting out there Matthew but we are at the nine o'clock um hour we're at the hour right now so we're going to round this off huge thank you okay, for coming well, on can, as huge thank you for coming on as usual I'm going to urge people to go and support you at the Steeples Times and to stalk you on Twitter. And, um, all the links will be down there in the description box below this video. So um, thanks for coming on. Matthew, I'm going to, I'm going to end Thank it now because you your video has gone a bit funny, but we'll ho hope to see you soon. So you, you have a good evening and thanks for your time. Okay. Cheers. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, so it cut out. Uh, perhaps it was getting sabotaged by the deep state at the nine o'clock hour. We were, um, huge thank you to Ash. Donald McIntyre was actually our 70th guest. Ash has a database of over 500 guests right now. Donald was our 70th guest. We went over 100 consecutive watchers on Patreon tonight. Huge thank you to all the people supporting our Patreon. Thanks to you guys. We are now putting out three true crime podcasts a week, as well as one to two live streams a week. Multi-hour content now, four or five nights a week. So thanks to you guys um, for giving us the security blanket to keep producing all of this great content. Thanks to the moderators. And let's not forget, happy birthday to Amy. Happy birthday, dear Amy. Happy birthday, you little hillbilly over in Alabama. I'm sure you're far more sophisticated than I make out. So, hope you have a great day, Amy. Your work and help and friendship and love and support has been invaluable over the years and um all the people you know constantly sending in messages um you're an absolute blessing because it is so overwhelming for the team and you have really helped us um you know with this insane workload that just gets bigger and bigger every week and some people have contacted ash as well who said he's looking for people to join the research team. So if anyone else is out there, let us know if you want to join the research team because the workload is expanding constantly. And it's, um, you know, we want to make sure that everyone sending a message or a comment gets a response. We want to make sure we're researching to get the greatest guests possible. And to do that, there is an absolute mountain of work behind the scenes um, so that we can bring you these great shows so thank huge thank you to the mods and to amy and to every single member of the team and to all the people who've sustained us
on Patreon. See you next week for Atwood Unleashed 16. Uh, the following week, I am on the road filming 10 true crime podcasts. But we do have an exclusive Patreon video that has been just shot by our cameraman, James. So we will perhaps time that video. It pertains to Maxwell. It's a, it's a colorful interview. We will time, perhaps time, well, I'm gonna, I'll discuss it with the team and we'll perhaps time the release of that video for the week when I am on the road filming those 10 true crime podcasts. And um, that's about it for this evening then. Thanks for joining us. Take care out there, wherever you are in the world. And we will be, we will keep this content rolling. Nothing's going to stop us now. Cheers. <laughs>